Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Mark McCourt, and I will tell you this, it is an absolute cracker. But before we dive into that, a quick word from our brand new sponsors. Cue the fancy music. The Mr. Barton Maths Podcast is proudly sponsored by Lime. Now, what is Lime, I hear you say? Have I suddenly got a citrus fruit sponsoring this podcast? Well, not quite. Lime stands for Leaders Improving Maths Education. It's completely free, maths-specific CPD in the Northwest, and it's flipping brilliant. Lime started life in Oldham back in 2014, and now not only is there Lime Oldham, there's Lime Blackburn, and there's Lime Salford. Over the years, Lime have had many great speakers, loads of those who've actually appeared on this podcast. For example, Bruno Reddy, Will Emney, and Joe Morgan. They've even had the man who keeps defying me when I try to get him on this show, the Don himself, Big Don Stewart. The next sessions lined up are in Oldham, that's Mathematical Thinking in GCSE. Um, in Blackburn, Jonathan Hall, the creator of MathSpot, he's coming down, or coming up I should say, to discuss using manipulatives to teach negative numbers. And then some joker is appearing in Salford to discuss variation theory and reflect, expect, check. For further information, please go to limecpd.co.uk, that's limecpd.co.uk, and click on the events to find sessions local to you. And I'll tell you what, um, I've been lucky enough to do Lime quite a few times over the years, and we get people travelling in from all over the show. Um, And I'm I'm northern, obviously, um, and I'm a bit biased, obviously. But it's so great to have this quality CPD up in the Northwest, as opposed to having to go to London or even Manchester or something like that. So even if you're not all that close, it's worth making the trip to the Northwest for some of these wonderful events and wonderful speakers. So just a reminder, if you want to know more, go to the web address, which is limecpd.co.uk. And also follow the three different events on Twitter. That's at Lime Oldham, at Lime BWD, and at Lime and I'll put those links in the show notes. And if, like Lime, you're interested in spreading the word about your product, service, or event to thousands of the very, very, very best listeners in the world, then drop me an email at mrmartinmaths at gmail.com to find out about some of the sponsor packages that we have available. Anyway, back to today's episode with Mark McCourt. Now, where to begin with Mark's career? He's done it all. He's a former classroom teacher, AST, head of department, senior leader, head teacher, Ofsted inspector, director of the NCETM, founder of the Teacher Development Trust, creator of eMaths, and now, whew, he's the CEO of LaSalle Education, which, among other things, gives us the wonderful maths comps that you'll have heard about tons of times on this podcast. 
Now, regular listeners of the show will be aware that this is Mark's second formal appearance on the podcast. During the first back in 2016, he made quite a few outlandish claims, my personal favourite of which was that he's never marked a book in his life. And having listened back to this conversation, I'm pleased to report that it seems he was just getting warmed up back in 2016 with some of those claims. So in a wide-ranging, challenging and ultimately fascinating conversation, Mark and I discuss the following things and plenty more besides. Mark gives us an overview of the history of mastery and chastises me for claiming it's been talked about more in the last few years than at any other point in my career. And dear listeners, you'll be pleased to know that this is not the only time Mark chastises me during this conversation. Mark introduces the concept of a learning episode and the four phases that comprise it. We discuss example problem pairs, low stakes quizzes and variation theory. Then, what is bridging and why am I not entirely convinced by it? Then we play a new game, which I've invented just for this conversation, which has the catchy title, Mark, tell us your thoughts on. And I can tell you now, Mark is in sparkling form as we discuss everything from starters to mock exams to schemes of work. Now, Mark is one of my favourite educationalists. I always learn something from him, whether I'm listening to him run a workshop, enjoying a beer with him, or reading his tweets. I find him challenging, mostly in a good way, and I absolutely love this conversation, and I really hope you will enjoy it too. The usual plugs before we get started. My book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, is still available from all good and all evil bookshops. If you want to sponsor this podcast, then just drop me an email. And now you can also support this podcast via Patreon and sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds a month. Details are in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Maths. And finally, I'm hosting a brand new series of podcasts called Inside Exams, where I go behind the scenes of an exam board asking the questions you want answering. Search for Inside Exams wherever you get your podcasts from or follow the links in the show notes. Anyway, let's get going with this conversation that I've been looking forward to for the last two and a half years since Mark last appeared on the show. So, without further ado, let me introduce the great man himself. I really hope you enjoy this one. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, so first off, Mark McCourt, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, thanks for having me back. It is a pleasure. You are our most requested return guest and you've been a regular feature on some of the most recent episodes with Pete Mattock and, and Joe Morgan and so on. And there's been a few few kind of claims made about things you've said and things you haven't said and so on. So we're hoping to get to the, get to the bottom of some of those uh, in this conversation. But let me start off um, by asking you, because I think you missed out on this one last time and it's one of my favourite questions. And that's to ask you to um, think about a favourite failure. Now this may be back in your teaching days or or maybe back in something you've done with LaSalle or a conference or anything, anything you want. Is there something that didn't go quite according to plan, but you learned from the experience? Uh, okay. It's an interesting phrase, favorite failure. I don't particularly favor failure. Um, I quite like success and being correct, but anyway, um, <laughs> you know, if you've taught anyone that's taught loads of lessons has taught loads of car crash lessons. Uh, it's, I know some people pretend they don't, but yeah, I've taught loads of really bad lessons. Um, Trying to think of one that I learned from, and maybe that will sort of segue into things we're going to talk about later. I was thinking about a lesson I taught right at the start of my career 
I think I was an NQT. Um, and it was about trigonometry and you, you're wanting them to develop a sense of trigonometry and kind of work out what these ratios are. And I was doing a very sort of um, traditional, straightforward, getting them to look at the lengths of sides of triangles. And then from that, hopefully, they're going to discern something about the ratios and the relationships that are going on with these ratios. Um, in other words, I'm trying to get them to inquire, right? So mm. I'm trying to get them to find a piece of mathematics that they don't know. Anyway, I'm teaching this, and it's it's just going nowhere. The kids are like, you know, you're off your rocker, mate. Well, <laughs> no idea what you're talking about. Um, so I then segued quite smoothly, naturally, into teaching them about it um, and just directly teaching them. And then they could do everything. They got everything in this lesson right. Um, now, the reason it was an interesting one is because I was being observed at the time by a local authority inspector. Um, so, you know, the days when the LAs had their own inspectors. And yes. They would, they would come and watch you and then help out. Um, and this guy watched this lesson, which, bearing in mind, an hour into this lesson, I'm thinking, what a load of crap this was. What a waste <laughs> of time this was. Um, but the kids got everything right. They got every question right I asked them to do. Uh, and we get to the end of this lesson, the kids leave, and then this guy gives me some feedback, and he says, um, "Yeah, that was that was an outstanding lesson. Well done. Um, you know, the kids were all on task. Uh, they understood what you were telling them. Managed to lots and lots of success. Got things right. Blah blah blah. Um, and off he goes. And it was important to me for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, this idea." of trying to get them to inquire before they were ready to. Mm. That was an important moment for me. Um, and then secondly, really early on in my career, I realized nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> you know, it, in, in every job you always assume, or you do when you're young, you assume in jobs, well, the guy above me, he'll know what's going on, right? And the yeah. guy above him will know what's going on. And somewhere up the hierarchy, there'll be some super intelligent person who, who <laughs> knows everything that's happening. And of course, what you learn through your career as you get older is everyone's bluffing and no one has a bloody clue what's going on. Um, so here I am as an NQT and this inspector says to me, your lesson was outstanding. So in my very first year of teaching, I realized, oh, so inspections are farce. That's all nonsense there. <laughs> Um, and that was really helpful for me because it made me uh, free, I guess. You know, so for the rest of my career, anyone that came and watched a lesson, I thought, I don't really care what you say about this. I don't really care about the judgment you give. I know what's going on and I know what I'm trying to achieve. Um, so, yeah, two, two things come out of that one lesson. Um, trying to, well, embarking on what I've continue to be interested in for years which is which order should it happen in you know this this whole teaching process when can pupils inquire when can they do these sort of deep meaningful things with mathematics that i want them to be able to do so that was an early indication to me that uh, there was something about the phasing of learning that was important 
Can and I then, just, oh, so can I just ask on that on that mark? Because yeah, yeah. we're gonna we're gonna dig into the the order of learning um, as we go through the conversation. But I just want to ask you something about this the the, the, the kind of nature of observations. Because you've said there that observations are a farce, but of course in a former life you're an Ofsted inspector yourself, and and you were you were inspecting in the days where you had to give a judgment for lessons, right? So how did how did you marry the two things together when when you know it's a farce and yet that that's your job to pass those judgments? Um, well, I was doing something uh, slightly different to that. So although I think I once told you about inspecting a PE lesson um, <laughs> yes. you know, and, and admitting to the teacher, look, oh, well, I don't know what's going on here. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was doing something more interesting than that. Uh, uh, in the, there used to be a time, uh, it doesn't really happen now, but there used to be a time where local authorities had inspectors and inspection and advisory services. Um and yes, you would go and watch and you'd inspect, but then your job was to fix. Mm. Um, so the stuff that I was doing, um, I, th- I, I wrote, I think I've written publicly before about um, Pope John's school in Corby. Uh, I was part of the team of, so this school was right on the edge. It was right about to, about to close down. It was in a really bad place. And a load of us there were inspecting, but, but not just inspecting. Like we were, we were inspecting and then having to fix, having to sort problems. Um, so I guess I was able to, um, you know, make it sit better in my mind um, that the thing I was doing was worthwhile because it wasn't just about saying, look, you're an outstanding or inadequate or whatever. Um, it was about saying, look, we've, rec- we've spotted these things that are going on, and maybe if we did these other things, which I will help you to do, maybe that will have an impact um, on, on what's going on in the school. Um, and I, quite a lot of inspectors and a lot of people involved in inspection and advisory service, I think, are able to justify what they're doing, even through those periods of the days of having a ready reckoner where you just open it up and say, you should be seeing this because you're watching 13-year-olds learning history. Um, I think a lot of people were able to say, well, actually, the bit I'm truly interested in is the helping out afterwards. Um, and, you know, there's this, a lot of that has disappeared over the years, which I think is a shame. I think it's, I think there's something more about being an inspector if you also have to know how to put the problems right. Yes. Um, you know, the number of times, every Everyone's been through it, right? You, you'll have done it. I've done it. The number of times someone's watched you teach, it could be an inspector, it could be an assistant head teacher or you know, whoever it is. And they say, well, you know, that was a pile of garbage, that lesson. And you go, oh, crikey, you know, because I don't, I don't want to be garbage. I want to be really good. Can you, can you tell me how to get better at it? Can you tell me what you would do? And they go, no, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so, well, yeah. <laughs> what's the point of that? <laughs> Why did we just waste an hour of our lives doing that? Um, so, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed that that phase of inspection and invite and advisory when they were linked together like that um can, can i just ask on that so, yeah. uh, just on that as well em and i don't want to take us too too far down down this road but we've had a lot of guests on the show who've, who've described um observations whether they are um teachers being observed or, or people observing themselves uh, people observing other teachers and you're obviously in a fortunate position these days that you get to spend a lot of time in lots of different schools um have you seen any kind of good practices to make the process of lesson observations actually useful as opposed to being kind of a, 
a blunt instrument performance management tool that is is quite kind of a scary and intimidating thing. What what what's good practice to, to make lesson observations worthwhile? Yeah, I see loads of people doing it really well. Um, you, know, you you can spend time in the classroom with a teacher, which is an enormous privilege. It's my mm, favourite thing. Yes, I love being in the classroom with teachers, um, and then you can have a discussion about it um, and where I see it working really well I see people uh, yeah, teachers will always say to you what did you think that's what they always say at the end. <laughs> what do you think of that uh, what would you grade that um, and where I see head teachers doing really good jobs is they don't play that game they just they say to the teacher um, so what, what did you notice happening in your lesson and and they get the teacher to articulate back at them uh, this is how I felt it was going these are the things I was thinking the, the massive problem with observation is it is impossible to know why the teacher's doing what they're doing, what they're thinking. That the complexity of the system that you're yes. watching is so, you know, so beyond anyone's reach. You don't know what happened to a kid the previous lesson. You don't know the relationships in the room. And so spending some time with the teacher and then getting them to articulate back at, back at you their thoughts of it, what you see happens happening then there's something about articulation isn't there there's something about um you think you've got a thought in your head and then you speak and you realize oh no that that thought is different to what i thought it was uh, and there's something really powerful about articulation so when teachers that are, are themselves saying these are the properties of the lessons these are the things i noticed in the lesson i think that's when you get something really powerful going on um and then, you know, head teachers and, and people in schools can do it better than inspectors because it can be long term and sustained. Mm. And, you know, after watching a colleague for, I don't know, what should we say, a decade, you might start to learn something about them. <laughs> um, yeah, you, but you can have, like all professions, you can have really valuable professional discussions with each other um, as long as you allow them to articulate their theories. Uh, yeah, I've got a real. Oh, God, I'm going to go off on one. Because um, <laughs> I've got a real beer in my bonnet about that. It's about something has happened lately, um, maybe in the last 10 years. Something has happened to stifle teachers articulating their own theories. And I think that's a very, very serious problem. All, all teachers have theories. They're carrying out experiments constantly in every single lesson. You know, hundreds and hundreds of decisions, hundreds of choices. If you if you don't allow teachers to articulate their theories, something very bad happens. Um, and and not being patient, that's maybe that's something about social media in the modern world. I don't know, but patience has gone. You know, if you've got someone who's been teaching two years, of course their articulated theories are going to be different to someone that's been teaching forty years. Um, but true professions recognise that difference, and they recognise that someone that's been teaching two years is just on the very start of a journey of expertise. Um, yeah, yeah. I see a lot, I see a lot of that now. I see a lot of, you know, early career teachers saying, I think that blah, blah, blah. And then someone just shuts them down. Yes. Um, which is the antithesis of, of teaching. So it's odd that it exists in education. And is anyway, it, is it, oh no, it's, it's, it's a oh, fascinating, no. fascinating digression that. Is, is it, is it social media, do you think, then, then Mark? Because, uh, again, uh, we, we, we both see, see examples of exactly what you've described there. But, but then again, we also see 
teachers in the in the early phases of their career and indeed teachers in any phase of their career learning a lot from social media in the sense that well our, our mutual friend Chris McGrain I think he's a, he's a, a great user of social media in the sense that he'll put an activity out a theory out some idea he's had and um, he'll invite people to, to comment and suggest things and it's done in a really positive way whereas again we, we both see examples where this isn't done quite so positive whereas you say um more experienced practitioners will, will shut down the ideas of, of less experience. So um, is, is Twitter to, to kind of blame for this? And, and are there ways that you've seen that used more positively so, so teachers can articulate their theories? Um, I don't know. I, I don't really know much about the modern world, um, <laughs> technology and things like that. Uh, yeah, Chris is really good at it. Uh, and there are loads of people really good at that. And there are loads of people who respond really well. Um, you know, I, I imagine you get the same as I get. Um, you know, when you when you switch on Twitter in the morning, there's always a load of people who have tagged you in a thread asking yes. questions. I'll tag loads of people. And sometimes you've got time to contribute and sometimes you haven't. Um, but, yeah, you see people just directly asking questions. Teachers saying, look, I don't know this thing. And some, mm-hmm. can a load of people help. Then you get a load of really, really good people will, will chip in and, and help so from that point of view it's fantastic um, I think what I was referring to is there's just something about recent times where um, a, a professional patience has has disappeared I don't know what's driving it uh, yeah, I would imagine a lot of people would everyone would say different things people might say things like um, accountability measures and mm. pressure in school and whatever um, and my answer is I, I just don't know. It's just something I can observe. I can see it happening. I don't know what the root cause of it is. Um, but I would imagine that the very nature of how people live their lives now, at this faster pace and expecting the answers to everything right now, um, you know, it's, it's as though the population has taken a pill that's made them all like a really irritating young child. You know, <laughs> look at me, look at me, look at me. Now, now. No, feed me, feed me. Um, you know, you just need to slap that child in the face. Oh, calm, calm the hell down. Um, that's metaphorical, mate. Don't get too panicky about it. Um, I think it will last. We had when Danny Quinn was on. We had the NSPCC involved there, so I'm thinking he might be involved again here now. With, with just to clarify, we're not slapping any actual kid in the face, there, are we? No. No, we're not no. slapping children. I mean, uh, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Right? That if if someone can't use a turn of phrase without a, a national body getting involved, then maybe the population has taken another pill that's made everyone so bloody thick that they can't appreciate the way people speak might not be what they mean literally. Anyway. Don't get me started on that. No. I really will go. <laughs> well, this is already. Uh, I think you've set the tone nicely, Mark, for for this conversation. Right. I want to. Um... Now, this, this is really annoying, mate, because uh, when I saw you the other day, <laughs> I told you it was my ambition on this this particular episode to be fluffy and nice. I know. And, and you know, already you've wound me up. Well, I think it's you lasted just... three minutes. You lasted three minutes. So uh, yeah, we've got another at least couple of hours to go. So like, let's see where this goes. Um, 
I want to I want to talk about mastery now. That this was something we we, we touched upon um, the first time you're on the show a couple of years ago. Um, but obviously, um, well, well, two two major things have happened. I think um, one, you you've got a book coming out on, on mastery, and two, I think just my naivety and and lack of understanding of mastery. Hopefully, I've I've, I've reduced that slightly. But um, I I just wonder whether you could you could just answer this question for me, Mark, because I think if you'd have said to me, so I've been teaching fifteen years. I've been teaching I reckon I don't think I'd heard the term mastery for about the first seven or eight years of my career if not maybe the first 10 years of my career then all of a sudden everyone went kind of mental over mastery but reading your blogs and having read a preview of your book it's very clear that mastery is by no means a new idea whatsoever so I wonder just just as, as brief as you like could you just give us a bit of a potted history of of, of where the idea of mastery comes from and, and crucially why all of a sudden in recent times it, it's gained this kind of increased status for want of a better phrase mm, okay um that's an interesting thing to say craig um i i think simon and garfunkel get it right man hears what he wants to hear disregard <laughs> the rest. Um, so i gave a speech let's say 13 years ago something like that in york and you were in the audience yes um and you're quite a young teacher and you know and at the time, you were Mr. Investigations. That's right. Uh, you know, investigations were, were your be-all and end-all. Um, in that speech, I talked about mastery. Um, and you didn't hear it. And yeah. I, think there's, I think there's something in that. I think that um, when people become sensitized to something, um, then it feels like it's everywhere. You know, it's like if you... If you buy a new car, suddenly you see that car everywhere, don't you? Um, so there's, there's something in recent times that has sensitized people to it. But people have been talking about mastery at a very high level, very, very broadly, um, in, a, in a real large discourse for decades and decades and decades. Would you agree? Um, would you agree? Just, would you agree with me, though, Mark, that it's it, it's talked about more these days or not? Do you, do you not get that same sense? No, that... no it isn't. Um, so, so what you're what you're seeing, what you're recognising, is um, that the cycle is coming back around. Um, but we're certainly not at the point where mastery has been spoken about more than it has been spoken about in history. Um, it was certainly more widespreadly spoken about in the 1980s. Certainly more spoken about in the 50s and the 60s right. um, than it is today. Uh, but the cycle is coming back back around as it always does. Um, so, uh, in a nutshell, mastery is a responsive model of teaching. Um, there are lots and lots of models of schooling, complete models of schooling. Mastery is one of those. Um, and I guess the easiest way to describe it is that it's kind of like doing one-to-one tuition, but with a class. Um, so, what's going on is the teacher is constantly asking questions to find out things that the pupils have gripped or not gripped so that the teacher can act differently. Um, and that's really important. It's not the teacher is not asking questions or giving quizzes or tests to work out. Can this child learn this maths or is this child bright or not bright? Um, fundamentally, the teacher understands that every single child can learn everything. Every child can learn well. And if they're not learning well, the, the thing that must be wrong is what I'm doing with them. So I must act differently. I must do something different with them. Um, 
So you get this responsive model of teaching where the teacher is continually, you know, people would refer to it as formative assessment. Mm. The teacher is continually trying to spot what's going on and they're tweaking what's happening, just like a one-to-one tutor would with their tutee. A um, lot of uh, emphasis there on um, the teacher and, and the teacher's responsibility. But there is another ingredient to mastery that's really, really important um, that nobody wants to talk about. Everyone, everyone just avoids it like the plague. <laughs> so you've got you've got the um, you've got the, the role of the teacher being central. That the way in which you communicate your subject has to be accurate and precise, and must take every child to the point of learning, and so on. Give the child the right amount of time, and so on. Um, and then the other ingredient is the whole thing falls apart unless the ch- child exerts deliberate effort um, and nobody ever wants to talk about that bit nobody wants to say you can have the best teacher in the world but if you're lazy you're still going to fail um, so there's there are these two intertwined things in mastery the skill of the teacher and the effort of the pupil pupil has to work really hard learning is bloody hard it's meant to be hard um, so the, the pupil has to understand their position in the in the deal, you know, there's a contract between the teacher and the pupil. Um, the teacher will be expert. The pupil will work really, really hard. Um, and nobody wants to speak about that. No one wants to raise that at all. Um, you know, you get – we've had – in England, you've probably had oh, 20 years or so now of that conversation being deliberately avoided. Um, you see classrooms where – I've even seen school policies where – it's a part of the assessment policy that if a child answers something in class and they're not right, you have to praise them, you know, <laughs> for, for, for not being right. You have to praise them. <laughs> seems rather odd to me. Um, and that you can't pull people up and say you're lazy and things like that. Um, and nowadays, it's, you know, there's a very odd scenario, very odd phenomenon, I guess, happening in schools and colleges nowadays where laziness, indolence, is being medicalized. You know, people are saying, um, well, the, the child's got special needs. Now, lots of children have special needs, and that's a real pain to, you know, to get through life with an impairment, but people do, and they work hard, and they can do it. But a lot of these kids where people are saying, that child's got special needs, maybe they're just an arsehole. <laughs> maybe, maybe they're just, you know, maybe they're just lazy and indolent is being medicalized people are saying oh no that child's got special needs you can't challenge them what you know why the hell can't we challenge them there's nothing wrong with them they're just lazy so effort is a massive part of mastery you have to work really really hard um, to make sure you learn something so you get this responsive model going on where teacher and pupil are in this dance together working their way through a discipline learning the entire discipline at the right pace at the right taking the right amount of time, working at the right level for that individual child um, so that over time they learn everything that they have to learn. Um, and that model's been around for a really long time. Um, so most people would refer to um, Benjamin Bloom and his codifying of it in the 60s and 70s. And Bloom's work was really important. But it's not a model that Bloom came up with. Um, it comes from a go- I called Carlton Washburn um, in the 1910s and the 1920s. Popularized it across the United States. Carlton was a, a science teacher, um, 
it comes initially uh, originally from a science teacher and he developed this model um, it was very very successful and then it's picked up again in the 1950s by the behaviorists and in the 60s by Bloom and then by John B. Carroll um, and then people like Tom Gusky in the 80s in fact the 80s all the way through to say Tom Gusky has been codifying and testing researching this approach I don't know anyone that knows more about mastery than Tom Gusky um, so it's been around a really long time about about 100 years now it's been formally in use as a, a classroom model um, but it's much more ancient than that uh, when Carlton Washburn was trying to form this model all he really did was copy uh, Aristotle's model of, of, of pupillage um, but Carlton was able to make it work in a one-to-many setting, which is just remarkable, to get the benefits of one-to-one tuition when it's one-to-twenty or one-to-thirty, um, I think is is really impressive. Um, so that's why I kind of espouse it and follow that. When you, when the, the, the other part, oh, sorry, go on, you go, you go. I, I was just going to say, the other part of your question as to why people are talking about it nowadays, mm. well, you've got the natural cycle of things so everything in education is on a 30-year cycle and it's, it's it's bang on time to be arriving again um so there's that going on and then you've also got um what happened uh recently was a school in london used the word as part of its curriculum model um and then that attracted some funding as part of an eef project which used the word and then because the word was in use the the, the um dfe then uh, spread this word into the NCTM, the NCTM spread out through the maths hubs. Um, you know, there's this kind of origin of it coming out of this school in London. Um, what's interesting about that, that origin of, of, of the current discussion is that when the school in London used the word mastery, they just plucked it out of thin air. Um, it was just the word they chose to use for their curriculum. It had nothing to do with a mastery model of schooling. And and then this has kind of muddied the waters where people are talking about different ideas. I sometimes hear people say, um, people sometimes say things like, oh, you're talking about, um, but you're talking about Bloom's mastery. And what I mean is, and by the time they get to that sentence, I just stop them and say, you know, <laughs> it, it, if you're not talking about Bloom's mastery, you're not talking about mastery. Yeah. And there's been a lot of effort has gone into trying to own the word um, because a lot of money had been spent. So a lot of effort's gone into trying to appropriate the word mastery away from this hundred years of provenance that it has. Um, and some of that effort has been to deliberately um, pretend or, or communicate that there are different meanings of the word. It's just nonsense. You know, it's, it's so widely written about and researched. It, it's of all the models of schooling that exist. I don't know any model of schooling that has been has been more researched, more codified, more tested, more trialed over different jurisdictions, different times in history than the mastery model. You know, and, and the education research community internationally uh, have for decades and decades agreed on its definition of what it is. Um, so to to pretend that, oh, you know, we, we, we're not talking about that word. Uh, we're not talking about that version when we use the word. It just seems silly to me. 
Um, but hey ho, these things happen. <laughs> can I can I just ask? Because when you describe this model, Mark, and I think you said it yourself, it see it's perfectly suited to one to one tuition, um, but it seems difficult to to deliver one to many. And you mentioned, and I'm sorry, I forget the name of the guy who who brought the, the, the model on to make it work one to many. What what was the key change that, that was made there? Like how how do you make mastery work when you've got a class of thirty students? Yeah, and that's the key issue for most people, right? Um, so the, the most important part of the answer is you have to start from day one. Um, so I see lots of secondary schools saying, oh, you know, we do mastery now, and you know, just beggars belief. Uh, <laughs> it it has, to be, has to begin at beginning, because the idea of it is you are building the discipline. You're, you're carefully, deliberately revealing the discipline in a coherent, scheduled manner um, over a long period of time to a pupil and a group of pupils. So if you start from day one, what you can do, because the teacher can be continually uh, doing this formative assessment process, this responsive teaching process, the teacher is doing that with all of their class. So what's happening from day one is they're highly homogenizing their class. They're getting their class um, to all grip the same ideas and to build the journey carefully and slowly together so that by the time they get to when they're 11 or 13 or whatever it is, is the, the group will be highly homogenized. So that's the ideal, that you end up with this highly homogenized class, which means we're all at the same starting point, which means we can move at pace. Every child can learn at pace. Um, a lot of people get that wrong. They, they think that low-attaining children can't learn at pace. It's not the case. It's just that they're not being taught the right stuff. But if you're, if you're teaching at the right level, everyone can learn at pace. So the ideal is, is you homogenize the whole thing. Um, in reality, there are always groups of children where, for whatever reasons, it could be all sorts of complex reasons, um, but for whatever reasons they don't grip it in the same amount of time or, or the amount of time um, is so extended that it becomes impractical. So what Carlton did and Bloom and pretty much every implement, every successful implementation of a mastering model around the world, what they did was to have non-grade settings, um, which means that the idea of year groups becomes less important. Um, so you could have mixed age classes because they are at the same starting point. Um, and you still see this happening today. You see this happening particularly around the Pacific Rim. You'll see um, pupils, maybe they're, they're in grade five and they haven't gripped the ideas from grade five. So instead of moving to grade six, they're held back a year and you end up with these mixed age classes. So in some extraordinary cases you end up with mixed age classes um, but sticking to the ideal of homogenizing the class as tightly as you possibly can um, is, is the, the kind of driving belief behind uh, the mastery approach and when I say that that homogenization is happening at the top level so it's not homogenizing everyone to the least that they can mm. learn it's taking every single, in our case, mathematical, every single mathematical idea, putting it in a, a coherent order and then making sure everyone grips that idea thoroughly um, in a robust way, in a way that's going to help them build a new um, idea on top of it. So it's really important that the expectations of every single child are very, very high. Um, you know, there's not much on the maths curriculum in, in England. It's 
from year one to year 13, there aren't many ideas on it. It's not beyond the wit of anyone to learn all of those ideas. Um, the reason they're not learning those ideas is because either the way in which they're being taught is not expert enough or they're not expending enough effort or it could be sequencing um, or it could be the amount of time that they're being given. So, you know, there are things that can be fixed that ensure that every single child can learn every single thing. Um, and maybe there are people listening to this and they'll say, well, you know, hang on a minute. What about um, kids with special needs? And, and there is there is a, a proportion of the human population where that amount of time, those 13 years, won't be enough. Um, but that proportion is extremely small. We're talking about the kids with the, the most severe learning difficulties, usual, usually physical brain damage, um, that that aren't able to learn these ideas. The overwhelming majority of children who are classified as having special educational needs can learn all of these mathematical ideas. They're, they're not that demanding, really, um, as long as it's sequenced properly and, and taught very carefully with the right amount of time. And is it uh, is it too late at, at the start of secondary? So if, if students haven't either followed the mastery uh, mastery framework or followed it, it kind of properly in primary school, they come into year seven. And even if everything is sequenced and everything is laid out perfectly from seven to eleven, is it is it too late at that point? Uh, too late for what? To to learn the whole of mathematics in that too period of time. Um, too late for them to, 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 to use your phrase, to, to grip all the ideas necessary. And let's use a, a real blunt instrument here to essentially get a grade nine on GCSE, let's say, for example. Yeah, for some kids it is, um, because it's the amount of time that matters and you have to give the right amount of time. So one of the things we're faced with in year seven is the attainment gap. In a normal comprehensive school in England, the attainment gap at aged 11 is around about seven years worth of learning. And every secondary school teacher knows this, though every edu education policy person tries to deny it exists. But every teacher knows there are year sevens who, and they're pretty sophisticated in their mathematics, they've learned the whole of primary maths, and there are some year sevens who can't yet number one to ten. Mm. Um, so if you've got them for five years, what you can do in five years is five years worth of mathematical learning. Now, Let's take the kid, because they're probably the most interesting kid, the kid that can't yet number one to ten, and they're 11 years old. Where could you get them to in five years? Well, you could certainly get them to a five at GCSE, you know, most, most definitely. But only if you take it really seriously, only if you say, this is where they're truly at. So you know, the damaging thing we have happening in year sevens is they're taught as they are treated as though they are and homogenized group. They're treated as though they're all at the same level, so we can have a year seven scheme of work, and they'll follow that scheme of work. Um, and what I'll do is I'll you know, do some really sophisticated differentiation and so on, um, but I'm going to teach them all the nth term of the sequence, say, whatever it is, you know, whatever the, the first learning uh, intention in year seven might be. But nth term of the sequence is a pretty common one in year seven. So you've got a kid who can't number one to ten or doesn't understand what numbers are or doesn't understand place value, doesn't understand proportionality, and you're teaching them the nth term of the sequence. Why the hell are you doing that? You know, what, the, what the hell is that about? You're a, you're, a, you're a bloody idiot if you're doing that. Stop doing it. You know, that kid needs some serious, serious consideration. They need some 
intelligent thought about where they're truly at in the learning of mathematics. And you need to take it seriously, because if you don't, when they're 16, that's, that kid still can't number one to 10. And there are loads of 16-year-olds who can't number one to 10. And that means for 10 years of their life, their entire mathematical experience has just been someone saying to them, hey, you can't do maths. You know, no matter what happens, every lesson you're going to sit in is just going to seem like hieroglyphics to you. Um, but what you can do, you know, so that's, 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 that's what I see happening a lot, this idea of year seven schemes of work. What you can do is you can say, look, we've got 200 kids and they're all individual kids and they're at different places. Let's take their, their learning, their education. Let's take it really seriously. That child, for whatever reasons, and you can blame whoever you want to blame, and some of it will be their fault, and some of it will be the school's fault, and some of it will be complex social problems, all sorts of things that are going on. But the reality is where they're at in their learning of mathematics is, you know, wherever, step X, right? They, they, they haven't yet understood um, a sense of number. So if that's the reality, that's where we're going to start. And we have five years to take a child who has no number sets. We have five years to work with that child. Well, that's great because in five years you can learn a heck of a lot of maths. You really can. You can learn loads of maths in five years. And it's perfectly possible to take a child who has no number sense at age 11 and give them a serious, intelligent, well thought through, coherent journey for five years that results in them getting a, a grade five at GCSE. It's perfectly possible. And you know, you have these moral choices. You can say, we're either going to take that child seriously and educate that child, or you can say, we're just going to give that child another five years of sitting in classrooms where everything is hieroglyphics to them. Um, you know, and I know where I fall morally on that, on that, that decision. I uh, just, I find it absolutely morally reprehensible for, for when people take that view of, oh, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm just going to teach them the same as, everyone else not treat them as individuals and they treat the group as though they are homogenized when no one has done anything to make sure this group is um, so the answer to your question is you can absolutely use a mastery model of schooling with every single child or, or adult or, or whomever learning anything at any stage you can use that model the model's really simple work out where they're truly at work out what maths they do and don't know and teach them the stuff they don't know it's not rocket science, right? Yeah, you know, just just teach them the stuff they don't know from where they are really at. Um, uh, so you can do it with everyone, but what you can't do, I don't think, um, or at least it would have to be a remarkable child. Um, so if they, let's say, they don't have a sense of number, so effectively they're the intellectual level of a four-year-old child, three-year-old child. Mm. Um, and you want to get them to a nine, which is the intellectual level of a 15-year-old child, 16-year-old child, it's really, really hard to do that in five years. You know, you're, you're, you're asking for 11, 12, 13 years worth of maturation to occur in five years. Um, so that's tricky. But luckily, you know, grade, grade nine, right at the top of GCSE, testing right at the top of the, um, the curriculum and the GCSE specification, but grade four and grade five, they're way, way, way down there. You know, if, if you get to a kind of intellectual level of a 10-year-old, then you can get a four or a five on GCSE um, without too much bother. If you look at the uh, the way in which the, the GCSE grades are structured and the intellectual capacity you need to get those grades, you see this all 
single time if you see a child that's learned the whole of primary maths and they're sophisticated right they're not they haven't they can't just it's not just that they can regurgitate it mm. but they're sophisticated um you give a sophisticated 11 year old a gcse paper and they'll pass it they'll get a five you know get a, they'll get a, a decent grade and then of course they can go on to continue their journey to get get a nine at 15 16 um so my answer is yes you can use the model but probably no to you could get every child to a nine in that sh- but only because it's a short period of time no, there's no other reason it's every child can learn everything you just need the right amount of time do you think if we were to to revisit this podcast for say the 30th anniversary of the mark mccourt return to the podcast so 30 years time where we come back together no doubt we're in some old people's home or something like that and we're talking mastery <laughs> and we're back round this, this this cycles come round again do you think we'll be looking at um, adaptive learning platforms as as the way to do mastery properly, for for want of a better phrase? Because uh, again, that that for me goes back to this one to one tuition and gets round the kind of practical difficulties that the teachers have with with thirty students who've had a wealth of different experiences, um, uh, operating at different levels, gripping things at, at different rates, and so on and so forth. Do you, is is it is is one to one adaptive learning platforms the future of mastery education? Um, I think it's, I think that it will play a role, but I don't think it's the future of it. I think it's the past, you know, Warden Burke in, in the 1910s, Warden Burke wrote out the whole of the subjects, across all of the subjects, wrote out the whole thing, the whole curriculum, all the questions, all the activities, and then these individualized learning pathways through the subjects. So you could, as a child, you could be in a classroom with 30 kids and then you follow your pathway and you have your activities and you have your quizzes for the whole thing. Um, and then you get people like um, B.F. Skinner who did similar things. Um, you get uh, the work of, so anything that's um, kind of independent learning systems, they, they existed in the 50s, they existed in the 60s. Uh, in the, in, in the, you, know, you had things like SMP, which had a, an element of that in the 60s. Uh, in the 80s, you had things like Smile, mm. um, and Smile was an independent learning uh, system. Um, oh, I love Smile. Smile was absolutely <laughs> bonkers. I just, just loved it. Um, I just, yeah, I, I love the aspiration of smile. You, you go and get your card from the filing cabinet and then you'd look at your, your record sheet. And the record sheet basically says, have you learned the whole of maths yet? <laughs> and you say, no. You know, the kid says no. And the record card says, well, bloody get on with it then. You've got more to learn. <laughs> I, I like that. Um, and then the teacher becomes a kind of um, diagnostic, responsive um elements in the classroom who's working with individual children so you had these guys that that had invented adaptive learning a hundred years ago you know mary ward francis burke uh, they did that they'd created this adaptive learning system it's just it was an adaptive learning system that used paper and cardboard mm. um, and now people are, are starting to build sophisticated ones with technology i'm sure that they will then play a part in in the the future of mastery as well um it's a it's a perfectly um logical step and when i think back to some of the stuff that carlton washburn wrote in the 1910s and 1920s it's almost as though he's describing um online adaptive learning platforms it's really uncanny uh and i think he he would look at some of the stuff you know if he was alive today he'd look at some of the stuff being created and thinking wow 
there is going to be the potential to do this. Um, so yeah, I, I'm sure that they will play a part. Um, and so will the teacher, you know, in, in the same way that in Walden Burke's system, the teacher was central to the inter- independent learning system. Um, yeah, the independent learning bit of it is to do with the right amount of time and the right concept at the right level, but it's the teacher who has the didactical models and the coherence, and it's the teacher who knows when to drip feed the journey um, to the child. So I think I don't think there'll ever be a point where the teacher is removed from the equation, though teacher might take different forms in the future i guess got it um i don't think you've said anything controversial for about six minutes so let, let's make sure we we, we get back on track with <laughs> I, that <laughs> when i, I ask did, you i didn't think i've said anything controversial at all <laughs> we'll <laughs> see we'll see um can i just ask and this this may be my my misunderstanding this may be too kind of blunt a way of saying it but but would it be the case mark for, for what you're arguing that if you start this kind of mastery approach for, from age four or five um ability groupings and whatever that they just don't even come into play because you're moving towards this homogenized group and you've got enough time to do it but if if that hasn't happened by the time we get to secondary school would it be the case that mixed attainment groupings we're asking for trouble and we should we should attempt to set because at least that's going to give us a, a better a, a better approximation of a homogenized grouping or is is, is that wrong well, look, there are there are lots and lots of models of schooling, and lots of them work, and lots of them don't work. Um, I happen to be to be a proponent of a mastery model, and in this model, um, it's really important that the groups are homogenised because you need to move at pace in this in this tuition fashion, even though you have a even though you have thirty children in front of you. So it's important the groups are tightly homogenised, as, as tightly homogenised as you can possibly make it. Um, so yes, if if you are in a secondary school, homogenize your groups. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Um, the but that is not saying um, that is not saying that things like other models can't work. I just mm. happen to support this model. Um, so you might uh, you might take the stance that for whatever reasons. And some of them are educational, and some of them are non-educational. But for whatever reasons, we 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 can't countenance the idea of segregating children in in any way. Um, so we want the groups to be completely mixed, regardless of their attainment. And that's fine. You're allowed, you know, schools schools and communities are allowed to choose to do whatever they want to do. Um, and all the evidence says that uh, in a conveyor belt system. The conveyor belt curriculum, which is kind of the antithesis of a mastery curriculum, but in the conveyor belt system, which is generally what schools in England use, there is there is no difference between whether you group them by attainment or not. Um, it just doesn't seem to have an impact on on the outcomes at the end of school. Um, so you know, if people want to do that, it's absolutely fine. But you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it. You can't you can't have we're going to have a mixed attainment model and we're going to have a mastery model because they just they just don't go together. You know, this is a huge part of a mastery model is the groups are homogenized, even to the point where Bloom and Washburn and many, many others, including lots of schools in the Pacific Rim today, um, mix the ages of the classes. Uh, so, you know, there are even these extreme um, uh, tactics to make them more 
homogenization as close as you can possibly get. Um, just, you know, on, on mixed attainment, I, I taught many, many mixed attainment classes, many mixability classes. Um, really enjoyed it, actually. It's, there's something about the challenge of teaching it that's quite interesting intellectually. Um, I'm seeing more schools in England moving to mixed attainment this this last year than has happened for a very very long time. Um, you know, for for a long time, Ofsted penalised any move towards mixed ability, um, and and it was a policy of the Labour government that mixed ability shouldn't be happening in schools unless it could be very very rigorously defended and reasons given for it, which is why it kind of went away. Now, what that means is you have a generation of teachers that have not been trained in that way. Mm. Um, and it's really, really hard, really hard to do. Um, hugely rewarding, intellectually, um, spiritually, hugely rewarding thing to do if you get it right. Very exciting, lots of fun. Um, and you can look at things like, you know, where, where you have systems in place like game, when game existed, uh, where you have systems like uh, graduate assessment and mathematics, you can do some really interesting stuff with with groups of children that that have this large attainment gap. Um, but you have to have the knowledge to do that. You you need to know the pedagogic choices, the didactical choices that are necessary to make it work. And one thing that terrifies me are the number of heads of maths I'm meeting at the moment that say we're going to change the mixed ability in September. This September coming. And I say, well, yeah, fine, whatever. Um, have you done five years of CPD building up to it? <laughs> and they go, no, no, we're just going to give it a shot. Well, don't bloody give it a shot. <laughs> you know, this this thing in education, we're just going to give it a shot. Don't. Don't give things a bloody shot. This is, this is individual human beings' lives that you're messing about with. We don't make sprockets in a sprocket factory. You can't just go experimenting with things without doing the groundwork. You know, they, they, it is it is so neglectful to say we're going to make this fundamental change, which requires a completely different approach to to curriculum, to classrooms, to pedagogic choice, to didactical choice. We make this huge change that requires all of those things, but without doing any of those things. It's it's really frustrating. And I'd say that the other way around as well. Mm. You know, if if you are a school that for twenty years has been teaching mixed ability, mixed attainment class. Classes, and you say to me, "Oh, this September we're going to we're going to set our classes." Okay, have you done five years of CPD? No. Well, don't bloody do it then. <laughs> what, can I case that? What, what what's behind the move that you're seeing to to mixed attainment classes? And the reason I ask is, and you, you'll you'll have far more knowledge and experience on this than me. But from from heads of maths that I teach, it often gets lumped together with a move to mastery. It's right, we're adopting a mastery framework or a mastery approach so we're at the same time we're going to move to mixed attainment but that almost seems the opposite of of of, of what you're saying is, is a sensible way of approaching it do you hear that and and if not what what is behind the um the, the move to mixed attainment do you think uh yeah i hear that um you know people education is a is an unusual profession people don't bother reading books you know, they just listen to a sentence at a conference or an event or on Twitter and they go, okay, I'll believe that. They don't bother reading books. You, know, you, you can't, it, it is simply nonsensical to say we're going to mixability because we're changing to, changing to a mastery model. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Um, 
And I've nothing against anyone that wants to change some mixability. Um, but you can't tie it to mastery. Um, and why is that happening? Well, it's happening because people are telling them that. People are saying it. Um, and people who pretend to be official bodies of the government uh, are saying this to schools. Um, and every time I say this, every time I say what I'm saying right now, someone will get in touch with me and say, no, that, that, that doesn't happen. People don't say that. Well, you know, how many heads of maths do, do, I, do I have to hear telling me that? How many events do I have to sit in and hear the, these words actually being said to an audience? Um, you know, it is being said. Um, and, you know, so, so heads of maths will often say to me, we, we're going to go mixability because of mastery. And I say, well, you know, you might want to look into that and you might want to do some professional development. Um, so there's that going on. There's this deliberate spreading of an ideology um, and that's playing a part, but it's not playing anywhere near as strong a part as the cycle. It, this is coming right on cue. We, we're exactly on cue for this to happen. Um, what will happen in the 2020s? And when we do our 30th anniversary old folks <laughs> session, we can see if this happens or not. Um, but what will happen in the 2020s? Everything is on cue. Everything is happening perfectly on schedule. Uh, in the 2020s, we'll move to a child-centered education system, and you know things like containment groupings and so on will become um, abhorrent and, and whatnot. You know, we'll, somewhere in the 2020s, probably around 2023, 2025, there will be a, a report of the form that Plowden took in the 1960s. Um, this cycle just doesn't stop. It doesn't break. Um, so that's a much, much bigger part than just a few people from maths hubs telling people the wrong thing. Um, the cycle is is kind of all important and, and makes it happen. You know, if you look at the decade or, or more than a decade, we had um, both the Labour government and Ofsted saying, you know, you know things should not be mixed ability and entertainment. There's this natural reflex. The pendulum keeps swinging back and forth, back and forth. Um, uh, I think that's mainly what's happening rather than the misinformation. And, and by the way, I like that that pendulum swings. Um, and I like that even though it swings to things that I find absolutely disgraceful, I like that that happens. Because I think if, uh, you know, education is political. And if, if it goes in either of the directions and just keeps going in that direction to the extremes, you end up with something quite tricky. So I like the fact that this pendulum swings making sure nothing ever becomes extreme. Um, but yeah, I, th I think that's what's going on more than the misinformation campaign. Got it. Fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to rewriting my book in about 10 years' time then, how I really <laughs> wish I taught math. So it sounds Absolutely. good. <laughs> um, can I ask you uh, one thing that I've, I've discussed on this podcast um, over the last few months, since I read it on part three of your Mastery bo uh, blog series, which, which is one of my favourite blog posts of, of all time, and I know it's a central part of your book, is, is the idea of a learning episode. And I really like this idea, Mark. I wonder if you could just um, describe to listeners who perhaps haven't come across this, what do you mean by learning episode okay so um briefly uh at, from the point of encountering a novel idea to the point at which that idea can truly be considered to be understood that's what i define as a learning episode um so you're meeting something new you'll go through some phases of, of enlightenment about this idea and then at some point you'll be able to 
have real understanding. So you'll be able to reason and justify and reflect upon um, the principles and the connections within that idea and across other ideas. And that period of time I think of as a learning episode. Um, you know, if you think of, I said earlier on, there aren't really many things on, on the curriculum in mathematics. Um, the number will be different however you do it, but, but some, you have to come up with a number. If you make a curriculum, you have to come up with a number and say, this is what we want to include on the, on the curriculum for mathematics. But between uh, year one and year 13, it would be slightly different however you phase it. But, but I, I think it's around about 300, 320 mathematical ideas um, that a child has to grip. And if you grip those 300, 320 mathematical ideas, you've learned the whole of school level mathematics. Um, so each of these ideas goes through a learning episode. At some point, you have to meet the idea, right? You, you don't know the idea. You have to encounter it for the very first time. Um, and then through working with it and experiencing it for a, a period of time, there'll be a point where that idea makes sense and, and you understand it. So can I just ask, sorry, Mike, just on this, can I just ask how specific are we going with, with, with these ideas? So to take that 320 ideas, could you just give an, an example of one, maybe around kind of an operation with fractions? Are we going something as specific as add two fractions together or do we go with the, with different denominators, denominators one multiple of the other, or is it just be able to do one of the four operations with fractions how, how specific do you go with these kind of 320 ideas if that makes sense um well well none of what you've just said uh, <laughs> perfect that's yeah that's the kind of bollocks we've had for years i, I think makes things <laughs> bad um so ideas wise I mean, you, you said add two fractions together okay so yeah. in there are some ideas addition addition's an idea okay yes um fractionness is an idea Yes. Right. So it add two fractions together is not an idea. Right. Um, but yeah, so addition would be an idea. And, the, you know, we know what these ideas are. It's not it's not like mathematics is some woolly, uh, indefinable subject. We know what they are. It builds up. It builds up uh, beginning with kind of axiomatic buildings. And then these axioms can combine together into theorems and proofs. And, you know, we build the subject up. Um so, you know, ideas in mathematics would be things like um, equivalence and equality. Mm. Um, so equality is an idea. And equ equality is a really interesting one. Like, how many teachers know what the equals sign means? It, it's really, really rare you meet a teacher who knows what the equals sign is. If you don't know what the equals sign is, that means you can't do one of the, ne the other ideas. So another idea might be, for example, equation. Well, that relies on you knowing what the equals sign is. Um, so equals, that's a nice idea. Equivalence, that's a nice idea. Um, numberness, what's a number? Hardly any maths teachers know what a number is. And then crucially, so number is an idea, numerals is an idea, digit is an idea, and those things are very different to each other. And if you don't know the difference between number, numeral, and digit, you can't possibly understand what place value is, and place value is an idea, and place value is the relationship between number, numeral, and digit in a given base system. So there's another idea, a base system. What does base mean? Um, if you don't understand bases, you can't possibly understand um, arithmetic. And if you don't understand arithmetic, you can't possibly understand algebra and so on and so on. 
Jeez, I mean, the reason the reason I asked this is because I this was certainly the mistake I made when I when I first encountered the, the, the concept of a learning episode, and this this will have been me not not reading it closely enough. So I'm sure other people haven't made this mistake, but I think it's quite easy to to confuse this with with a kind of traditional scheme of work where you've got two weeks or three weeks to do a certain mathematical concept for for want of a better phrase, or or learn a mathematical skill. But this is very different to that, isn't it? So that's why I use the use the example of, of adding fractions or operations with fractions because that would be something that would appear on a scheme of work whereas a learning episode it, it will be it will be scattered over 10 15 years would, would that be right well it all depends on the idea um you know some ideas you can learn in five minutes some ideas you can learn in an hour some ideas might take you three weeks some ideas might take you your entire life and you still don't grip that idea um so the the period of time it takes depends on the idea and and depends on you and depends on the models and the metaphors the examples that you encounter and the connections um but what we see happening in schools is that people take the unit of learning as a timetabled hour mm. in a school day i think that's a really uh, a really tricky position for schools to take that that's a unit of learning. It would be serendipitous beyond belief that every single mathematical idea takes precisely one hour to learn. <laughs> you know, and, and it's obviously farcical, right? I mean, you just have to say it out loud and you go, oh, yeah, so lesson objectives are bollocks, aren't they? You go, yeah, they are. Okay. You know, learning, learning doesn't happen in an hour. Learning happens over whatever amount of time it takes. Um, so... I think understanding the big ideas in mathematics is really important. Um, the things you were talking about earlier, and, and you need some logistical way of structuring sure. your lessons, you know, because because you have got hours on timetables, right? So you've got to do something in those hours, um, and you need logistical ways of structuring these. And the things you were talking about earlier, where you, uh, where you were talking about, say, adding a fraction, um, maybe that, maybe what's happening there is you're encountering some way of working with ideas such that working with those ideas continues to reveal more about the underlying principles of the idea. Mm. Um, so maybe, maybe these objectives that people are using are ways of having, having the idea coherently, carefully over time reveal itself um, to the person that's learning it. Um, and you do need those, you know, you need a journey to, to, hang your uh, lessons around. But we need to get away from the idea that a, a timetabled lesson is the unit of learning. It, it most certainly isn't a unit of learning. Let, let me ask you then, within this learning episode, the other thing I find particularly useful, Mark, that you, you speak about and write about is, is the notion of the, of the kind of four stages, the teach, do, practice and, and behave. Again, for the benefit of listeners who, who haven't read the blog or um, who want a bit of a teaser before before they snap up the book, can you just tell us a little bit about what, what each of those phases are? And, and perhaps with a concrete example, if possible, because that, that's the thing I, I struggle with, particularly when we get to the behave phase. I, I can't quite visualise what, what that's going to look like so if possible if you could kind of illustrate or illuminate these with concrete examples that'd be that'd be fantastic yeah um so like i said you you meet a novel idea and you get to a point of understanding it that's a learning episode um i think that what happens in these learning episodes is that you pass through as a human being you pass through different 
um, phases of enlightenment and and, uh, and uh, ability to do. When you meet a novel idea, this is just true of everyone, you meet a novel idea, you don't know that idea. And I think a really efficient way of advancing as a human being, as a society, is if the people who knew those ideas tell you them. I think it's really efficient. You know, <laughs> why, why, why would that not make sense? Um, so you go through a phase where all that is happening is you're being taught. So a teacher is describing something. And, and this is the phase that teachers recognize. So the teacher stands at the front of the classroom. They write examples on the boards. They do models, metaphors, examples. They describe them. They instruct. They talk about them. They describe the steps they're taking and so on. You know, so they're just directly saying, hey, look, these things are true. Mm. Um, I'm going to explain why they're true and how they logically fit and why this, why this does make sense based on everything you know currently. Um, so this is the teach phase's instruction. Um, and what I'm going to suggest is that the instruction phase results in zero learning. No, no learning occurs in that instruction phase at all. Um, so you've had this instruction, you've had these explanations, you've been told why it logically fits and so on. So by learning, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about far transfer. It's the only thing I'm particularly interested in is far transfer. So that is at some undefined point in the future, you will be able to use that idea in any way you wish. Hmm. Um, so not, not in some defined way, not in some specific question, but you'll be able to use it like a tool. You'll be able to put it to use at some point in the future. Um, and the teach phase doesn't result in that at all, uh, because I don't think the teach phase results in um, any kind of change to your long term memory, any kind of change to uh, your ability to have file transfer. So you give a load of examples uh, and then they go through a do phase and do the do phase is a replication phase. They're regurgitating what you have just shown them. And we're doing this for lots of reasons. One of the reasons we're doing this is quite often in a teach phase, if you're instructing, they might sit there looking really happy. They might even be nodding. Uh, and they might be smiling faces on whiteboards and thumbs up and stuff. Um, but they also might not know anything that's happening. Um, so the do phase is, can you articulate back at me, please, what I've just communicated? to you and you get them to do that you get them to come on show me show me you can replicate what I just showed you and they're, they're doing that that allows you this moment of, of seeing okay so these these guys can replicate the thing these guys can't I need a different model different metaphor different example more explanation whatever it is so we're going through this teaching and doing phase and I like to interweave those phases so that you don't move too far in your explanations before saying mm. come on show me show me you can do this so there's this batting to and fro with the teach and the do, teach and do, teach and do. So I, I've got an example, you show me. I do an example, you show me. That's not quite right. Let's get that fixed. Um, okay, I didn't explain that properly. Let me do this. Um, and there's the emphasis on the teacher again, right? So the teacher is saying, um, okay, if that kid wasn't able to articulate that back at me, it's not because the kid's not able to do the maths. It's that I haven't yet communicated it in the way that they need. So I will change or make some change to what I'm doing. Um, so we go through those phases. And I'm also going to suggest that the do phase results in no learning either. And that's quite, um, mm. I mean, that truly is controversial. That, yes. you know, the, that's, the, that's the only controversial thing I've said today. I don't um, know about that, but yeah, this is controversial. <laughs> yeah, I'll give you that. Because that's what almost all lessons are. 
teach and do. And also, further than that, more importantly than that, is if you're being inspected or observed by a colleague, those lessons get really good grades. They're praised because you showed them something and they can all do it. Mm. Well, hurrah, that's, that's a great lesson. But I don't think any learning has occurred yet because I think that all human beings can regurgitate what they were shown five minutes ago. And if they have recency, you know, it's only just happened. And if they have Q, if you've just said, mm. like, here's an example, here's an example, here's an example, and now you're going to do questions, and they're going to be exactly the same things, exactly the same steps. Well, anyone can do that. But so, is, it, is, it, is it necessary, this phase, then, the do phase? Does yeah, it, what, purpose, what, what, what purpose does it serve? So the only purpose of this batting to and fro is their articulation back at you that you are truly communicating what you think you're communicating. Right. Um, so, you know, um, for example, the teacher parable, um, the experiment with the tapping, um, where uh, a teacher taps out some tunes and then the teacher oh, says, yes. I think that 50% of the audience will know my tune, but only 5% of them end up knowing it. So one of the things that happens in the, it, 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 with teachers is that teachers very often assume, well, I've given a very clear, very... Um, a very good, well thought out example. The kids must get this, um, and we we always over assume. So this batting to and fro is just you checking your teaching. It's a way of you changing as a teacher. It's a way of you adding additional metaphor, example, model, and so on. So would I, would I be right in saying? Sorry to interrupt, Mark. So this is a curse of knowledge. Will be uh, perhaps the, the way of describing. I, again, I really like that that tapping experiment. And this curse of knowledge is something I've, I've I've suffered from for for years and years and years. But am I right in saying then that the purpose of the do phase? You you're not necessarily learn well. You as a teacher, the important thing is if the kids can't regurgitate what you're doing, that's when you need to adapt and respond. That That's the kind of key purpose. It's, it's a check on your explanation and communication as a teacher, as opposed to it being an indication that the kids are learning. Would, would that be right? Yeah, exactly. You're, you're, you need, if you're a teacher, and I mean that in the broadest sense, if you're trying to get anyone to do anything new, um, you need to check that your articulations are what you think they are. Mm, yes. um, because we always over-assume. So we go through this phase, um, and that's where most lessons stop. And I'm going to suggest that's not good enough, um, because I don't think that file transfer arises from that. What they're doing is performing there. That's all they're doing. Mm. Um, then what we do is, by doing enough of this, by doing enough of the do phase... And we can make the questions on the do phase pretty smart. We can do things like backward fading, backward phasing, for example. Um, do you want to just describe? These... What, do you want to just describe what that is, Mark? Uh, so backward fading is. Uh, suppose I give an example. Um, I'm going to I'm going to show the kids how to solve an equation, and that equation has six steps, and then they do an equation which has six steps, so they're regurgitating, and then I'm going to do another example, and this equation also has six steps. But what I'm going to do instead of showing them six steps is just show them the first five, and then leave off the, the last one. But then they do a six-step one. Then I'm going to mm. show them another example, six-step, but I only show them four steps, and they do all six. Then I show three steps they do all six i show them two steps they do all six i show them one step they do all six i don't show them any steps but give them a new problem they do all six um so that, that, that's called backward fading which is when you're doing these this batting between example 
um, problem, example, problem, example, problem that's batting to and fro with the pupils, backward fading vastly improves far transfer. Um, and there's another element to that as well, where instead of just leaving the, so you can make backward fading even, even stronger than it is. Um, so maybe I do five steps and I leave off the sixth step. That's backward fading. But I can do another process, which is called prompting. So I do five steps, leave off the sixth step, but I give a prompt about what that step was about, um, a kind of hint about that step. And then I work my way backward again. So f- four steps and then two prompts for the fifth and the sixth, three steps mm-hmm. and then three prompts. So we get backward fading and prompting. And we know, you know, this, I mean, this, the, the, the data on this is in, you know, we know this stuff. Um, the, the, the improvement to far transfer compared to ordinary example problem pairing is very significant. Um, so, so we're doing this, uh, but also what I'm going to be doing with my my do question. So I do an example, and they do their example. We're doing it in that way I've just described. But I'm going to make their example just slightly different. So there's something developmental about their example. There's something more they have to think about. And by doing enough of this doing, what happens is that pupils start to become fluent. Now, I know people talk about fluency a lot and all sorts of different ways of speaking about it. When I speak about fluency, I, I very specifically mean the point at which one no longer has to give attention in order to perform. Mm. So there becomes a point where doing enough of these, seeing enough models, metaphors, examples, explanations, doing my developmental questions, there becomes a point where I no longer have to give serious mental energy and can still do this. And I call that point where, where you achieve fluency, the point at which you no longer have to give attention, I call that point the segue from doing to simply practicing. And now we're in the practicing phase. I've, I've, I've attained fluency of this idea. I can do it without mental energy. Now I give them lots and lots of very carefully planned practice um, to, to work on these questions. Um, and you sometimes see lessons that look like that. You sometimes see lessons where kids do get to fluency and they are practicing. Um, but it's really hard within one hour. You know, that's, it's, it's much more likely that that's going to take longer than an hour. Um, and then they're off and they're doing their, their practicing. So the teach do practice phases kind of segue one to the other. Um, and I think make a lot of sense to most teachers. They kind of, they kind of recognize that, that process. Um, could I, can I just ask Mark, can you, because again, I, I disagree slightly that I, I, th- I think most lessons that I see actually, well, on the face of it, incorporate the teach, do and practice elements. But I wonder whether you've got something more specific in mind with the nature of what that practice looks like. And I wonder whether many of the things I see are actually just teach, do. It's just that the, the, the practice that the teacher thinks that they're giving the kids is actually more just the do, more just the regurgitation. Whereas maybe you've got something different in mind for, for the practice. Well, what, what does the practice look like? Yeah, it generally is in classrooms that it's the teach-do phase um, because in the vast majority of classrooms, people are working to objectives, one-hour-long objectives. Mm. And fluency, that, that point where you no longer have to give serious mental energy, that probably takes longer than an hour. Um, so maybe you've got a week and you've got five lessons on that week and maybe the first three lessons on this idea you're just doing and then the two lessons you're 
you might well be doing practice. Um, so it's that thing of mental energy. Um, sometimes you do see it in individual lessons, and particularly with certain types of children. All children learn at different speeds, so some of them will get there much quicker. Um, but then the nature of practice, uh, I think we can be pretty smart about how we how we give practice. If you have recency and cue, I don't consider it to be practice. So, um, you know, so if you take the example, let's say I'm, I've just told, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I want the kids to be able to find the hypotenuse of a right angle triangle using Pythagoras' mm. theorem. So I'm doing this teach do thing. And I'm doing loads of examples. And I say, oh, you can find this hypotenuse. Take these two shorter sides, square them, square root them. Right, let me show you another one. Take these two shorter sides, square them, square root. Let me show you another one. Take these two shorter sides, square them, square root. Let me show you another one. Take these two shorter sides, square them, square root. Okay, here's a bunch of questions. 50 questions, off you go. And on those 50 questions, every one of those questions is, well, I'll just square the two short, short sure. sides, add them together, and square root them. Well, that's not practice, because it has recency. You know, I've, I've literally just told you that this is what you're going to do. And, it, you know, so it, and it has Q. This is the thing you're going to do. Yes. All of your questions are going to look like this. Um, and they are perfectly appropriate things in the do phase because you're just getting them to articulate back at you. Are you listening? Are you hearing? Are you, are you, is the, is the received curriculum the same as the intended curriculum, right? Are you receiving what I'm trying to, trying mm. to communicate? Um, but I don't think it's good enough for the practice phase because at the point of fluency where they're not having to use mental energy to actually do the process, we don't want them not using any mental energy. Yes. So we now want them to be doing things that are still hard. Every, every phase should be difficult. Um, so in the practice phase, what I'd suggest we must do now that they have fluent, uh, fluency. So there's, there's that part of the, uh, of, of the, Working memory is now much freer. Now that we have this fluency, what I suggest we must do is put together some much more intelligent practice. And one of the things we know that has an enormous impact on far transfer, um, more than backward fading, actually. Uh, I'd have to check my figures. This, but this, is, this has a really, really strong uh, impact on far transfer. And that is method selection. Mm. Method selection has an enormous impact. Um, so maybe I've just done that to that, that, that Pythagoras question, gone through the, the, the teaching the do phase. They can all, they can all do it. They don't have to think about it. They've got fluency. Now I give them a worksheet with 50 questions on, or however many, whatever it is. I give them a worksheet with 50 questions on. I know they're in the practice phase. So the 50 questions now, maybe only 10 of those questions are finding the hypotenuse in the right angle triangle. So that what happens in the practice phase is that every time a child looks at a question, the very first emotion, the very first experience they have to go through is, hello, what's this question? What is it about? Is this question the method that we are lear we're learning about at the moment? Or is this question a method that I have in my long-term memory from previous? What method do I have to select to attack this question? So this idea of method selection being really important. And you have to teach method selection. It's not a natural thing. You have to stand at the front of the classroom and model it in front of children. You have to stand and put a question on the board as a teacher and say out loud, oh, hello, what's this question? What's this question about? I wonder what method I have to do. You have to model these behaviors. So you take your internal monologue 
and speak it out loud in front of them so that they understand that that's the way in which a mathematician goes about addressing a problem. Now, why might this matter? Well, we know it has an enormous impact on file transfer, so that's really good. But also, suppose you're then three years down the line, you're sitting in your GCSE uh, exam. Well, the GCSE, GCSE exam is a bunch of random questions, right? And there's no recency and there's no queue. So the mm. very first thing you have to do on a GCSE paper, the very first thing you have to do is you look at question one and you have to say, what do I need to do to attack this question? Mm. Well, if you've just had an education of 11 years that hasn't taught you that that's one of the single most important things you have to do whenever you meet a mathematical question, why would you do it on an exam? So when, when, this, when we're in this practice phase, there is something about the nature of the questions, the scheduling of the questions, the um, proportions of the questions that have recency and the proportion of the questions that don't have recency that's really, really important. And w um, would I be right? Would I be right in saying there, Mark? Sorry to interrupt you. So th this is um, I try to do something similar with the the idea of the SSDD problems. And the mm. two things I two things I find about that. Firstly, kids find it flipping hard, particularly if they are used to say, let's take your example. They've just come out of a they've just the previous lesson they've done Pythagoras, and you present them with, in my case, four questions, all of whom look quite similar on the surface. They're like, well, where's the Pythagoras one? Or I thought we were doing Pythagoras, and then they're having to think really hard uh, method selection to, to use your your phrase to try and figure out which one relates to something that they've just done so that's one benefit but the second benefit of course is they're also then being forced to try and figure out how to do things that perhaps they haven't studied for a month a year two years so then we start to tap into benefits of spacing so would, would, would that be another benefit of, of this practice to also bring in prior concepts to to use well whatever terminology you want to use to boost the retrieval and, and storage strength storage strength of of those concepts as well in long-term memory yeah definitely and and it's a it, it's a lot more a heck of a lot more than um than you were than you were mentioning there um this this practice phase is your opportunity to do something profound mm. um so yes there is spacing it, hopefully that's self-evident, right, why the spacing. Um, sure. But there's also interleaving. So you now mm. have 50 questions where each question is is, is disrupting your thinking. Yes. Um, so now onto a different method. So you've got interleaving there. You also have the testing effect. So something that's coming up from, you know, ages ago. And even if you can't do that question, it's reminding you of that, that idea, which it improves file transfer again. Yes. Um, you've, you've also got um, not, not just the testing effect, but you've got testing and potentiating learning so you've got this this um i like to refer to it as sensitizing you have sensitized the children to being alert um so that testing potentiating learning the thing of something has come up and i didn't get that right or or, or i can't quite grip that that sensitizes you to be really alert now to a better bloody listen the next time <laughs> he gives an example on this you know it's really really important um, so you've got that thing of, of, of sensitizing as well. I believe very strongly that the hypercorrection effect is on there as well. There mm. is something about method selection. Once you say, I believe the method I'm about yes. to use is Pythagoras' theorem. Oh, bugger me, it wasn't. I, I, <laughs> yeah. Hypercorrection definitely kicks in there because you have an emotional shock. Um, so what I've tried to do in, in formulating this phasing, this teacher practice behave phase, what I've been trying to do 
do for for years is say, okay, well, loads of people that I admire, you know, so I've got Washburn and Bloom and, and particularly John B. Carroll, um, who's kind of the father of cognitive science. And the reason I became a teacher is John B. Carroll. Um, so there are all these people I admire that have been doing all this work. How can you take the benefits of all of these ideas and get them into one place in a coherent um, structure that makes sense for a teacher that, that isn't piecemeal? So you, you're getting all of the benefits of the things I've just mentioned there. So, for example, interleaving is definitely in there. Um, there's, there's definitely something about the way in which you're disrupting from method selection to method selection that is interleaving. But it's within the body of the content of the lesson. And what I'm seeing happening a lot at the moment, again, because people, you know, people will just hear sound bites and then do things. I'm seeing things like interleaving and spacing and testing effect and so on being treated as though they're standalone, um, things that you can do piecemeal. So, so I might mm. have, I might have an interleaving part of my lesson. Um, and I just think you're kind of missing the point. That that isn't what that isn't what the, the data says at all. It's not what the research says at all. Um, it's about during the learning. You know, if, if you if you take the interleaving thing, you make it a separate thing. Well, what the hell are you disrupting? You're not disrupting anything. And and the point of interleaving is that it's disrupting. It's creating some disruption to the learning that's going on, the thinking that's going on. Um, so what I'm trying to do with these phases is take all of the elements of research and evidence of the people that I admire and have read over the years and try to put them into a coherent framework um, that can be applied in classrooms. Um, so, I, yeah, that, that practice phase has got a lot more than, than that. Can I ask just before we move on to the behave phase, because as I say, this is the one that I particularly struggle with. But just just one more question on practice. And I'm, I'm slightly nervous to ask this, but I'll just throw it out into the mix, Mark, and, and see what your take is. Where, where, if anywhere, would what I would consider intelligently varied sequences of questions fit into your model so far? And by that, I just want to be clear that I'm, I'm not talking the interleaving. I'm not talking where it would call upon and bring into, bring into play different areas of mathematics, but it would just be the, within one relatively narrow defined concept for, for mathematics, whether it's sequences or whether it's Pythagoras or whatever, but the questions are varied in a certain way to draw students' attention to underlying concepts and relationships. Would, would that fit in anywhere? And, and if so, where? Yeah, um, so variation theory definitely in the practice phase. Uh, but just to unpick something you said there, you said mm. underlying relationships. Um, those underlying relationships I would also be including in the do phase and the teach phase as, as explicitly pointing out some of those relationships. Yes. I see variation theory as not being about underlying relationships, but being about underlying principles of the idea um, and those kind of questions, those kind of tasks I would, I would have existing in the practice phase. The reason I have them existing in the practice phase is because I want fluency to have occurred so that the mental energy required variation theory. If, you, if you're going to start to discern underlying principles of an idea, that's where I want my mental energy yes. and I don't want my mental energy being, being taken up by process and doing and something quite um, mechanical so it has to happen in the in the in the practice phase which um, kind of brings me on to the outcome of, of the practice phase so this this again is all this is 
always really controversial when I talk about this, and I don't know why it's controversial because because it really is what the evidence says. Um, I think that the practice phase, the result of the practice phase is that children can enquire with an E, right? Enquire. Um, now, enquiry is pretty sophisticated. It means you can conjecture, follow, follow lines of questioning. You can generalize. You can prove. Um, you can do some pretty sophisticated stuff with enquiry. Um, you can see connections. You, you understand there are connections across mathematical ideas. You can describe underlying principles and so on. Um, so I think that enquiry can happen in this practice phase. But I simply do not accept, and I know no evidence to the contrary, I do not accept that it is possible to inquire with an eye. Um, I don't accept it's possible to inquire with a novel idea. Um, and inquiry with an eye is what I think happens in the behave phase. Um, and what I see is the difference between those two uh, ways of thinking and attacking a problem. You know, enquiry does some really sophisticated stuff. Conjecturing, proving, generalizing, that's sophisticated. Mm. Um, I want kids to be able to do that. And I want them to be able to do it with every mathematical idea that I meet. But inquiry adds an additional layer to it. So inquiries, sure, I can, I can conjecture, generalize, prove, test, and so on. Inquiry adds, the, the, the fundamentally adds, it can also reason, reason why those connections are true. And I can reflect on how I have changed as a human being, mathematically and, and generally, how I've changed by this new, uh, by having this new enlightenment. Um, and this ability to reason why connections are true, to reason across domains of mathematics, um, is more than just seeing them. So by enquiring, you can say, you know, these, these two mathematical ideas are connected. I can see that that's true. But inquiry requires understanding. And I take their behavior this view of understanding. That understanding, if there are connections between mathematical ideas, understanding is the strength at which one can reason why those connections are true. And what I'm convinced is the case more and more so the older I get what I'm convinced is true is that understanding and that reasoning requires a maturation process it requires literally time to pass because what's required is you have to meet future dependent mathematical ideas to complete more of the web of mathematical ideas such that you can shine a light on that, idea, that novel idea from a while back. You can shine a light on that now from new perspectives, from new ideas that you've learned. And it's that maturation process that brings about justifications, reasoning, reflection, um, and to really take that final step. And what people would call, people would call that problem solving, I guess, right? So, if you, if enquiry plus inquiry, maybe that equals full problem solving or mathematical modeling. Um, but I think that they, they happen at different times. Um, and that inquiry requires maturation. 
So the, the weird thing that people always scratch their head over when I talk about this is teach do practice happen they segue into each other. You know, maybe it's mm. three weeks or whatever. But the behave phase happens a long time afterwards. Um, and having looked at this for a long time, what is that maturation phase? And I'm going to suggest that that maturation phase is approximately two years of learning. Um, and I don't think this is controversial. You know, people like Hugh Burkhart were writing about this in 1980 or 1981. Um, I don't think it's controversial. Um, and actually, if you step back for a moment and think of yourself as learning mathematics or you watch children learning mathematics, when do you really start to grip, properly grip, truly understand ideas? It isn't when they're novel. Mm. You know, so the kid that is learning Pythagoras' theorem, that still has a kind of, okay, I can do it, I'm fluent, I can solve problems mm. with it, I can, I, can I can, you know, do some pretty sophisticated stuff. But it's much later on. Maybe it's when they're doing 3D trick and something Pythagoras comes up and they go, oh, my God. I used to find this intractable. I used to find this really mm. demanding. Now it's, now it's trivial. And you see this, anyone who lectures um, mathematics degrees, in, it's usually the second semester of the first year of a pure mathematics degree. If you're lecturing, you've got 150 students in front of you. Um, and you, you maybe you're talking something about calculus. And you see this wave come over the audience of them going, ah, that's <laughs> what calculus is. Even though they were introduced to it in year 12, when they were pupils in year 12, and they could do it, and they could be fluent in it, and they could do some pretty sophisticated stuff with it. There is this maturation process that happens where understanding occurs. And the reason that process takes a couple of years is because you have to learn a bunch more um, about mathematics and about the ideas that might connect to it so that those new things give you insight into that novel thing from a couple of years back. Um, so then you can do the behave phase, when people say, well, what do you mean? What kind of tasks are they doing in the behave phase? Well, you're doing mathematical inquiry. And that's things like mathematical modeling. Um, and I really like, um, I heard Colin Foster use the phrase, uh, which I, I think I've heard Hugh Burkhart use before as well, um, that if the problem solving demands are high, the mathematical content demands have to be low. Mm. Which is, that's a nice way of describing that, I think. If you want, if you want them to do something extremely sophisticated in terms of problem solving, mathematical modeling, mathematical inquiry, the content can't be the thing that's holding them back because the yes. demand of inquiry is itself exceptionally high. Um, so the sort of things that's happening in the behave phase are these mathematical models and, and really deep, meaningful problems. And what I see happening a lot is, um, I see schools trying to do this behave phase with novel ideas and then getting really frustrated as to you know, why, why couldn't the kids do that? And it, well, because they're not ready for it yet. Yes, they could do the content. Yes, they could do the procedures, the mechanical things. Yes, they're fluent in those ideas. But there's something more about enlightenment. Enlightenment doesn't occur in time. It occurs over long periods of time. I find this absolutely fascinating, Mark. If we... If we take again, I know, I know I always kind of I've come back to GCSE a couple of times, but there's a reason for that, and I know it's because it, listeners, uh, the maths teachers among us, this is this is on our minds all the time about w w preparing our kids adequately to thrive and succeed in in these exams. 
Is there anything on GCSE that fits into this behave phase or can it all be covered by practice? Well, you, you end up with this interesting um, postulate that what we're saying is that when children sit their GCSE exams, like the, even the, the, the kids that are right at the top of attainment, that have, mm. they're going to get nine, they're going to get 100% of the paper, whatever mm. it is. There's probably about two years worth of mathematics, which they can do, but they do not understand. Exactly. Now, that means they can't carry out meaningful problem solving with those ideas. But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that's okay. You know, it will mm. come when they study A-level and come when they study a degree and so on. The movement in uh, the way in which GCSE questions are structured um, as a response to, you know, we think the GCSE questions are too trivial, let's make them problem-solving questions, um, which a lot of a lot of math teachers feel that's up the game of GCSE papers and um, making them focus more on problem-solving in their lessons. Some of those questions do require um, enquiry, but I don't think there are many questions that require inquiry so where you have this reflection and justification mm. um, of connections occurring maybe at the very you know maybe for the most sophisticated pupils they're able to do some justification where the content is content demand is quite low um, but I, I don't see a lot of that on the GCSE papers so I think really what's happening on the GCSE papers is enquiry rather than inquiry which we want to get every, in every learning episode, I want to get every kid to be able to enquire anyway. So that seems to work okay, I think. Got it. Fantastic. Well, that, honestly, Mark, this is, is it, yeah, I, it's always fascinating speaking to you, but this, this in particular. Um, what, what I want to, what I want to do now, um, and don't worry, there'll be time to, to, to plug your book. I know you'll be, uh, you'll be annoyed if we, if we don't fit that into the end of this conversation. But before we, before we get on to that, um, I've actually invented a whole new section of this podcast just for you here, because I couldn't think of a better way to do this. And I'm going to call it Mark McCourt, tell us your thoughts on. So the way this is going to work is I'm going to I'm going to give you a I'm going to give you a prompt and you can just do whatever you like with it and this will all be related to things I've either heard you speak about or or read uh, read that you've written on and so on and so forth. So to start off with something that's been referenced um, on the podcast a number of times over the last uh, couple of months or so, Mark McCourt, tell us your thoughts on starters. <laughs> um, so three hundred and twenty ideas all have learning episodes. Um, every learning episode starts, it's got to, right? Um, and maybe a learning episode lasts three weeks or whatever, whatever. It could be a week, it could be three weeks, whatever, but it has to start. Um, and I would suggest that the start of a learning episode should happen at the start of a learning episode and not every scheduled, timetabled lesson that happens to be a part of that learning episode. Um, because that's a real waste of time. Um, there's some really interesting things about how to start learning episodes. I think one of the one of the most important things we have to do as teachers is to understand that children are not clean slates. They know a heck of a lot. It doesn't matter how old they are. They know an enormous amount of stuff. Um, so one 
one really important aspect of starting a new learning episode, you're about to teach them something novel. You've got to get relationships right with children. I think I think this idea of a contract with children is really important. But you say to them, look, I'm going to guarantee you, you know, absolutely guarantee you, you will learn every single thing in mathematics. I promise you. That's that's my mission. You're going to learn every single thing. You're always going to be successful. It's always going to come true. You're always going to be enlightened. You're always going to feel good about what we do. I promise you, as long as you put in the effort. So there's the contract. Um, and I think we can be really explicit with children. Children are sophisticated. I think we can be explicit with them and say, you know when we start a new idea, a novel idea, a new learning episode, you don't know it yet. I haven't taught you it yet. <laughs> that's okay. It's absolutely okay that you don't know this yet. But I promise you, in three weeks' time, you will know this. Right? That's, that's the deal. Um, so maybe at the start of this, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the, the most difficult thing we're going to try and address in this learning episode. And we're not going to try and address it until three weeks down the line or whatever it is. Um, I'm going to show it to you. This is, this is the outcome of this. This is what we're going to try and do uh, by the end of this learning episode. Now, the reason I'm doing this is one of the things we need to do as teachers is destroy, absolutely wipe out misconception. Um, just get rid of them. They're really unhelpful. Um, and one of the things about all human beings is when you're faced with any scenario at all, any question, any prompt, anything at all, when you're faced with something, all human beings have what we call invented strategies. So they have a way of thinking about it, going about it, because you know stuff about the universe, you know stuff about you know, things you've encountered previously. So all children have these invented strategies. And what has become the norm um, with schools is to ignore these invented strategies and then just plow on. But if you do that, you don't get rid of the invented strategies that are incorrect and they hold on to them very, very uh, mm. dearly for life. So suppose we're in this Pythagoras lesson again that we were talking about and it's a, it's going to last two weeks, right? And at the end of it, they're going to be able to do these some sophisticated question mm. I've got on the board. And I show them it. I say, right, guys, so this is a novel learning episode. You don't know this idea yet. I promise you, you will. Okay. Guarantee it. Um, you always will. You know, you know, you know, that's how it pans out. You know, you always end up feeling good about it. Here's the, here's the question. Um, you can't do this question yet. I've not taught you it. That's okay. But what I want you to do is just for a few moments, have a go at trying to resolve it. Now, the question may be on the board. The question says, determine the length of the hypotenuse of the triangle, right? Now, they don't know Pythagoras' theorem yet, but they do have invented strategies. And if you give them a few moments, all children will play around with it and they'll do things that they do know. So maybe the two shorter sides are labeled with lengths and maybe they'll take them and say, well, I can use those to estimate the length of the hypotenuse. Maybe they'll do something quite sophisticated like a scale drawing or whatever. Um, you know, they'll use knowledge that they already have to, to come to a resolution for the problem that you've just shown them. And then what we do, so this is called bridging instruction. We're going to bridge from their invented strategies to truth. So then what we do is we say to them, okay, tell me um, what you've tried to do with this. So we're going to elicit from them their, their invented strategy. And the kid says, so what I did was blah, blah, blah. And they tell you their invented strategy. Now, it's become the norm in, in England schools. It's become the norm to when a kid tells you the invented strategy and it's complete nonsense. It's become the norm to say, hey, well done, Johnny. That's a really good try. Aren't you marvelous? Fantastic. You know, you give them all this praise. That's a really unhelpful thing to do. So they give us this, um, 
they give us this inventive strategy, and this is what the teacher must do if you want the benefits from bridging instruction, which vastly improves file transfer. So the kid tells you this thing, and it's just nonsense. So the teacher now says, no, that is not correct. And I am now going to tell you the correct way of doing this. Now, the reason we're doing that is exactly the same, I would suggest, as the hypercorrection effect. They do have this inventive strategy. They did believe it. They did think it. Whether you got it out of them or not, it was there in their head. What we've done here is we've taken a moment to elicit it from them, and then we've created an emotional shock. We've created this emotional shock such that they are then sensitized to, I really better listen to what he says now, because I thought the way you could do that was this, and that's not the right way. Now this guy's going to tell me how to do it. I need to give it all of my attention all of my effort, all of my focus. And this is something known as bridging instruction. Elicit their inventive strategies, tell them they are not correct, and then instruct them correctly. And what we know it does is it breaks down deeply held misconception um, by creating this this kind of emotional shock moment. Um, so I can, would... I, can I just can I just say it, Brick? I've been thinking about this load since I heard you say this. I think Blackpool was the first time I heard you speaking about bridging. It, it doesn't sit right with me, Mark, at all this. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, you know I love the hypercorrection effect. I'm, I'm the world's biggest fan of the hypercorrection effect. But for me, I've got two issues with, with bridging. One is that I think it's going to take a while. So to take your Pythagoras um, example, um, getting kids playing around with this and then collecting in kind of all their ideas, even if we're kind of shutting each of them down and straight away, it's there's still a time factor. And again, every decision a teacher makes has an opportunity cost because it's time we could be spent doing something else. So that's my first issue. But the second issue is I could very much imagine this being quite frustrating, possibly demoralizing um, for, for the students who are kind of scrabbling around without the knowledge by definition to, to solve the problem so it's just a fruitless exercise because none of them are going to come up with Pythagoras's theorem or it'd be very rare if, if they did isn't it just more efficient and, and better for, for for morale just to say look I'm this this is how to do this I'm just going to tell you how to do this now what, what what's the argument against that the argument against it is we know it leads to stronger file transfer, and that's really all that I'm interested in. Um, it doesn't damage morale, and it doesn't take a long time. You just got to do it right. You have to build the contract. You have to build the relationship. Mm. You have to say to them, of course you don't know it. Of course you don't. That's fine. Just have a bash at it. Have a play with it. You do know lots of stuff. Now, the model that you're suggesting is that you just instruct them. What happens if you just instruct them is whether you like it or not, those inventive strategies are in their head. They do believe those things. They do have these misconceptions. And what you're doing is you're saying, well, I'm telling you this is true. Uh, and I'm giving you my method. What happens with that is they still have their inventive strategy in their head held as truth. So later on, when you come to um, meet a problem in the, in the future, which is why bridging improves file transfer, because they still have that misconception in their head and that, that inventive strategy in their head, and they have your layered on strategy, there is a conflict between which one should I go for? So Mr. Barton told me a way of doing it, but I know another way of doing it. Whereas what we're doing here with bridging is, is just saying, no, no, it's not right. And this argument that it, you know, some of the things I see in schools, that it, that it is kind or it is kinder or it is more compassionate to say to a child who tells you something wrong, hey, well done, Johnny, that's great. That's not kind. It's, it's really not kind. 
to tell a child, well done for being wrong. Being wrong is not going to help them. It's, I, I it's just I, not good being wrong. <laughs> I, I, I agree Go with on. you on two things. I agree with you on two things. So I agree with you on that 100%. I agree with you on the, the, the telling a kid who's wrong that, it, that it's right. I'm trying to almost, like uh, Doug Lamov talks about rounding up, where you say, oh, I know what you're saying. You're saying this. And the kid definitely isn't saying that. And it's, it's, it's all a big con. I'm 100% with you on that. Mm. Um, I'm also, I think I'm with you. I like the idea of bridging where there's, there, there are misconceptions that you could you could imagine kids having. So say, for example, adding fractions, you could well imagine kids overgeneralizing how they've always added two numbers together and add the numerators, add the denominators. I could see I could see that and I could imagine that would be a useful thing to get out in the open early doors, shut it down. Um, and then show them show them the way to do it. But to take your Pythagoras example, maybe kids have never considered how to how to calculate the length of a hypotenuse. So to take something like factorizing a quadratic, maybe kids have never considered how to put things into into to, uh, put a quadratic expression into into two brackets. It just seems a little unfair to 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 expect them to just kind of play around fruitlessly with 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 something when you've got you've got the knowledge to to show them how to do it does, does that make sense no um <laughs> look i know i know what you're saying and you know i was very careful when i was describing the teach fits i was very careful to say you know we know some stuff and a really good way of getting people who don't know things is to tell them right you know it's mm. it's, it's an efficient way all we're sure. doing here is we're taking this takes a really short period of time this this is like 120 seconds max to do this you don't take every kid in the class uh and you just and you're saying to them look it's okay you don't know it just give it the bash um the idea that they play around fruitlessly is is nonsensical if you give them a pythagoras question you haven't told them anything about pythagoras you haven't told them about theorem or anything like that but there's but there's a picture of a triangle and two of the sides are labeled with lengths kids aren't thick they they can think of ways of finding the other length they really can um because there's nothing difficult about doing that um so you just give them this moment to do it it's very very fast and then you say nope not got it and now i'm going to teach you how to do it and it's about sensitizing them to you really really better listen to what i'm saying now this matters this is important um and you know the the, the studies are the studies are there they're very interesting data that comes out of it it's uh, the, the impact on file transfer is very interesting um, and as long as you handle the relationships in the, in the way that I was describing, mm. which there's, there's a contract between us, I guarantee you, you will always be successful. I guarantee you, you will always overcome every single thing we ever meet. You will learn the whole of mathematics, guaranteed. Um, as long as you have that relationship, they're, they're fine. Yeah, I've done this with loads of kids, and they look at it and they play around with it for a bit. And what's interesting with inventive strategies, so if you look at the, 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 the studies on, on inventive strategies, what's really interesting is if you give them different types of problems so you, so the studies break this into graphical problems uh graphical problems that are linear graphical problems that are non-linear then word problems linear non-linear and then um symbolic problems linear non-linear um and what's really interesting is that very very often children's invented strategies in graphical problems are correct like like a huge proportion of their invented strategies are correct <clears throat> so that means you've got a learning episode where you say look here's the answer and I haven't taught you it yet and you will get to do it blah 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 have a bash at it and then in 60 seconds they say well this is how you do it and you go well bugger me yeah that is how you do it wow that's cool you guys already know this where did you get that from 
because they they have learned lots of other stuff, lots of connected sure. stuff. Um, so yeah, I think it's 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 a really fast thing, and it's there for a very specific purpose to create <laughs> this emotional shock, which which um, which we know lessens the impact of these internally held misconceptions that they have. Um, that's interesting. Well, I'll t- I'll, I'm going to I'm going to think hard about this, Mark. Yeah, that's yeah. As I say, it doesn't sit 100 percent right. I mean, in fact, I'm going to reflect on this uh, in the in the takeaway at the end of the show, so you can listen. Yeah, you can listen to my thoughts <laughs> there on that one. Um, can I ask you? Well, we'll go back to this little this little section. The Mark McCourt, tell us your thoughts on because I, I want to go a bit more specific on the starters now. So, Mark McCourt, tell us your thoughts on um, do nows. So, and what I'm just to be specific for everybody listening here, I'm talking about you are you're in a lesson. It's Wednesday morning. The lesson is going to be on, let's say, nth term sequences or something. The kids walk in, and there's five questions on the board, and one of them is on calculating a percentage increase. One of them's on solving a linear equation. They are they are a mixed topic. Do now starter. Well, what's your thoughts on those? Uh, I think there are uh, yeah, and so I people do them. I think they're pretty much a waste of time. Um, they, 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 there are several reasons why I think they're a waste of time. They disrupt the learning episode. The learning episode needs coherence. Um, you know, and that learning episode might last three weeks. And I think that the, I think that all human beings, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, have have has led to all human beings learning through storytelling. I think that storytelling is incredibly important in mm. teaching mathematics. So the narrative and the coherence and uh, the journey of a story through a mathematical idea is really key. Um, and I don't want to disrupt that story. I don't want it to be disjointed. Um, so I like individual timetable lessons that segue from one to the other. Um, so that's one thing in terms of the learning journey. The other thing is, um, oh, actually, before I come to that, I also see people doing them and then calling them spaced retrieval practice and all that kind of stuff. Um, because then you can write it in a policy or you can say it at a meeting or whatever, and then you know your school can say, hey, we, we do cognitive science stuff and we've got, aren't we at the forefront of education and whatever. You think, well, no, not really, because you haven't bothered reading the books. And if you did, it's far more sensible to have it in the body of the content so that it's actually achieving the things that it's meant to achieve. Um, You know, this this idea of people get interleaving really, really badly wrong. Um, And and having that bell work or do now work, that's not interleaving. Um, And then the other thing I was going to say is that we... We did a study a while back looking at the impact of starters um, in different types of schools. And there's stuff about the attainment in those schools that's really interesting and stuff about how much time is wasted that's really interesting. Um, but I'll leave that for people to read in the book. But one thing that was that is, I, th- I think, really intriguing is that when we interviewed the pupils in schools, the word that they use more than any other word. Like you, you, know, you can do these tallies of, um, of what was said. The word they use more than anything about the way in which lessons started was the word optional. 
So many, many pupils said, and they weren't being, these were not bad children um, necessarily. Uh, they, they weren't being sort of flippant either. They, they were just saying, when you said, describe lessons to me, they were saying, okay, so we have to walk from French to maths, um, and there's this optional bit at the start of the lesson. So it's kind of okay if you miss that. Uh, and then the lesson starts about a quarter of an hour into the lesson. And this, this word optional gets used over and over and over again. Optional, optional, optional. And then when you dive into that and you say, why is that bit optional? They say, well, because it doesn't matter if you're there or not. They, they can still be 100% successful in the performance in that lesson. In the body of the lesson, they can still get everything right because the explanation starts a quarter of an hour into it. So there is no penalty. There's nothing punitive about just ambling in whenever you want. So we found that intriguing. And then what we did was say, look, well, that's that's really fascinating. Let's take some of those schools where the heads of maths are up for it and remove starters and see what happens. And what happened in every case was punctuality vastly improved. Like, you know, ridiculously. So the lessons start. And now there is penalty. If you're not there at the start of the lesson, there's penalty to you. There's a, you, you have a deficit in the lesson. Um, so children were just walking to the lessons promptly. It doesn't take long to walk from French to maths um, or wherever you're going. Um, and they were just getting there much, much more promptly. So punctuality improved immensely. And what that allowed the schools to do was, was in each timetable hour on the timetable, they were able to dedicate far more of that hour to learning the novel idea that they're trying to learn in this learning episode. So I thought that was a really intriguing thing. It, it is, it is, and I'm I'm with you. I'm with you on that. But let, let me come back to you, come back at you just just with one thing. So so you'll know, having sat through my thing in Blackpool, I'm a fan of, of low stakes quizzes, and it was really interesting because I did my talk straight after your talk, where you'd said starters were bollocks. You don't interrupt the learning episode, and I came along saying. Twice a week, I like to start my lesson with a low stakes quiz. So I'm going to I'm going to put forward an argument, and I'd be I'd be interested what your what your comeback here is. That I think one advantage of either a low stakes quiz or a mixed topic start or whatever you want to call it is that you can more easily. Um, test students' ability to recall topics, specific topics, than you can. Within the body of the lesson. So let me give you an example. So imagine that your learning episode is is um, surrounding compound measures, so density, speed, pressure, and so on and so forth. Now that may go on for for quite a while. It may go on for two weeks, three weeks, and so on and so forth. But what happens if I want to make sure that um, I test my students' ability to retrieve knowledge about circle theorems, or or sequences, or or ratio, or angle facts, or or, what, or solving quadratic equations? How do I do that within the body of a lesson on something like compound measures? Is it, isn't it better or is it what's the problem with setting up as a low stakes quiz or a mixed topic starter where the students take it seriously, whatever you decide to make the stakes um, for, for that quiz or that starter to be. But at least then I can make sure that I have a scheduled systematic way of making sure that students are regularly forced to retrieve different areas of knowledge as opposed to just hoping I can find some way to fit it into the body of a lesson. Because I don't think it's possible to get all areas of math into all learning episodes. Okay. Um, 
So I would suggest it's in the body of content in the practice phase. Uh, but let's just take your school for a moment because, you know, I, I've pretty much zero interest in telling people which pedagogic choices to make. Um, so if this is your choice to do this, then, then fine. Let me just ask you, though, in, in the school you were describing in, in the talk you gave mm. Black, um, do any, any of those children turn up late to the lesson? Do any of them turn? Ah, oh, you'd, you'd get a couple who would be a few minutes late, sure. Okay, so all I would suggest is give it a shot. So one of the things that I see a lot is, you know, there's, there's a generation of teachers who were trained um, where three-part lessons were, like the mm. holy grail. Sure. Um, and there's also a generation of teachers now, actually, who were children themselves in classrooms. <laughs> yeah, that's lessons. true. <laughs> um, so they all do starters, okay? Yeah. And that's fine. Like, you know, go for it. We all want. Uh, but all I would suggest, all, all I would um, say to you, Craig, is why not give it a shot? Why not try two weeks where the lessons start and they're about the novel idea and there is penalty? Um, but, you know, where, where are the, but where uh, are the other ideas? How am I getting the other ideas in there? So throw them into the body of content of the practice phase. So the reason that um, perhaps you find that more difficult than I find it mm. is um, with your SSDD approach, um, what you're doing there is you're, you're getting benefits of method selection, um, but you're making the questions related, right? You're making the, mm. the, the ideas related. On the surface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah sure. Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to suggest there's... They, they can they can be completely unrelated. Um, so the body of content of the practice phase, only the practice phase. If you want to get these uh, other topics, if you want to try some retrieval of these other topics, mm. throw some of them into the body of content of the practice phase, and then just see what happens. Like I said earlier, every teacher is a researcher. Every teacher is carrying out experiments all the time, um, and you could give that a shot for a couple of weeks uh, with uh, those classes, and, mm. and, and you know maybe punctuality would change, maybe it wouldn't. Maybe the benefits from retrieval would change, maybe it wouldn't. Um, but the, the point I'm making is, uh, give it a shot. Um, it, ju it just feels to me that, that that disrupts the learning episode, though, doesn't it? Or I suppose, is that the point of the practice phase, that you want kind of switching methods in there? Is that what I've missed? Yeah, so the, pra the practice phase, I want, because there's no mental energy from mechanical mm. process, I want mental energy to be high at all times. So I'm making the mm. mental energy be about method selection, because method selection leads to greater file transfer. So what I've designed there... Um, in, in, in this proposal that I have in my book, what I've designed is a way of having high mental energy, s still on the novel idea, but bringing in the benefits of testing effect, interleaving, spacing, um, hypercorrection, all that stuff into one one place. Um, and what you've done is you've said, well, I'm going to take exactly the same amount of time uh, mm. on timetable lessons, but I'm going to structure... Um, the content in a different way. And that's fine. Um, we're both trying to achieve exactly the same things. And I would suggest that we pro probably are both achieving exactly the same things um, in, in those two methods, in those two approaches. I think that one of the things that 
I'm additionally adding into um, what I'm trying to achieve is the continuity of narrative and storytelling um, across mm. the mathematical idea. Um, and I worry about breaking storytelling continuity um, because, and that's an interesting one because all the other stuff that I'm talking about, uh, they come from, well, most of the other stuff comes from influences of mine and research and evidence that I've been involved in. And, you know, I, I'm, kind of sh I'm kind of putting a jigsaw together of things that I think will make a difference. Um, the storytelling and continuity of storytelling, um, there's not a paper on that, right? It doesn't exist. Well, maybe, mm. there's, maybe there is, but I haven't got one. Um, and there's nothing, there's no effect size showing you far transfer. I just think maybe a couple of hundred thousand years of evolution might matter. Um, and from my experience of being an educator, storytelling, narrative, coherence matters an enormous amount. Um, I, I, oh, listen, I, I agree with you on the power of storytelling. I just think that that story's broken anyway be between lessons, between days, right? So, again, I just, I think that if, if a kid has maths period one Wednesday and then has it period three on a Thursday, that, there's a break in the narrative there. And I, I, I think we can still bring kids back into the narrative. But 10 minutes into that lesson, having done potentially a mixed topic retrieval based starter, that, that, that would be my argument against the break of the narrative. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. Um, I, I, I'll be clear. I don't think you're right. Um, but, <laughs> no, I know, I know but, that. <laughs> but maybe you are. Um, and what's interesting, what's what's fun about being in this profession is, and I, you know, I talk about this in my book. But one of the fun things about it is you can only ever know what you know at any yes. stage in your life. Um, yes. And at this stage of my life, I believe these things to be true. Um, and maybe something will come along and shake those beliefs and change that. Um, but from everything I've seen and the, the, the data I have and the experience that I have, I, I'm pretty convinced that this this is a very powerful thing to do. Um, I'm not I'm not convinced by the argument of uh, the breaking of the narrative over days and different lessons. I mean, I'm sure you you're old enough to have had an education where you're at school. You remember when maybe you were in English and you were reading a novel. And you're like, you know, you're, you're part of the way through the novel and you walk into the English lesson and it would literally start with you all sit down and then the, the teacher would say, right, OK, carry on reading that, Craig. <laughs> you, sure, sure. And, and you're bright enough, right? You know, kids are sophisticated. It's not that, you know, it's, it's not that you need some big introduction to it. It's just, like, oh, yeah, this is this is where we left off. Um, and they watch TV soaps and they play computer games and they play oh, games and yeah, there's, there's there's lots of things that are interrupted where you can go straight back into the narrative. But that's that's true. If, 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 if that, but if that's the argument, then they can also do ten minutes into a lesson, though, right? They might be able to do that, but then you get this punctuality decrease. All right, okay. Oh, okay. I would suggest that the single most important resource. Okay, so maybe this is maybe I should have started by saying this bit. The single most important resource that a child has is you, the teacher. And I I am convinced, more and more convinced, that every single second that you are physically present with them mm. matters. Uh, yes. There's only, on average, in England schools, children have 1,600 hours of mathematics lessons. Um, if you decrease each of those hours by 10 minutes, that's a lot. Yes. It really is. Um, so, so I think there's that thing of 
punctuality of very clear continuation of mm. no faffing, get on with it. Mm. I think that's a really key thing for me. Okay, okay, I'll give I'll give you that bit. Um, I want to ask you two two more questions, Mark, and then we're going to um just mention where people can get your book just to wrap things up. Um, first question is <laughs> this could be a, a brief one if you want. I heard you say something. Now I've heard you say many things over the years that 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 I've known you and we've been friends, but I'd never heard you say this one before. So the last time you were on the podcast, you made the the big claim that you've never marked a book in your life. And if listeners haven't heard that one, go back and listen to the first time Mark was on. But I heard you say something, Blatchel, <laughs> that I never heard you say, and that was that your kids had never done a mock exam in their life, and that the first time your year 11s uh, did their did a, a GCSE paper was when they walked into their actual GCSE exam. Now people are going to be listening to this roundabout GCSE time and perhaps you know trying to squeeze in a few extra mock exams so is that is that true and and, and why um i think that uh, so i heard you talk about this on your podcast at blackpool i think i think joe listened to me more clearly uh, <laughs> because oh, because she because she actually heard what i said uh, so the slide that i'm showing when i'm saying these words the slide that i'm showing says 100 percent of curriculum time um, dedicated to learning a novel idea, right? Sure. That's what it's called, sure. something along those lines. Um, so what I was saying when I when I spoke about that is I was saying that my kids have never used any curriculum time to do a mock paper, not, right. not ever. Um, one of the things that it frustrates me enormously to see year eleven shut down in February, and then the lessons are just kids sitting doing mock papers or year six shut down and the kids are just doing practice papers in the lesson the the single most important resource they have is you every minute you're with them you can teach them and you can learn an enormous amount of mathematics between february and june a huge amount um so what i was saying is that no curriculum time was ever spent on doing mock exams um and mock papers and practice papers in lessons now of course um which i think is what you said on your on on the the Blackpool podcast when you're talking to Simon, um, you know, when you two were laughing about this, uh, <laughs> uh, you got it right by saying, but surely he shows them questions. Of course, of course. We've yeah. seen loads and loads and loads of sure. questions. Um, but all of that is in the body of content. I would never, ever sacrifice an hour lesson to not teach children. It's just, you know, that, that time is so precious. Um, now, what that meant was uh i have more time to teach kids so what we what we always try to do uh and this was when i was ahead of maths right what we always tried to do was teach them beyond teach them way beyond the intellectual level they needed to be at for a gcse paper well guess what happens if you give yourself february to june to teach more mathematics there's a lot of maths you can teach Mm. so you can you can be more sophisticated. You can take them further. You can teach them questions that are harder than the questions they're going to meet on the exam. And then when they meet the exam, and they really do say this, uh, there was there was a, a, a kid. He's not a kid, right? He's in his thirties. Uh, there was a guy who I taught when he was a kid, right? Who is now a maths teacher, who came to um, a maths conf a couple of months ago, uh, and he said to me, "I do that now." That, that thing you used to do, like, you know, so 
whatever the question is, compound interest, Pythagoras' theorem, adding fractions, whatever, always teach them more sophisticated ones than, than the ones you know are going to appear. Teach them to a more sophisticated level, a more complex level than the ones that are going to appear on the paper. And they would literally walk out and say out loud, that was a joke, wasn't it, sir? I used to love that. <laughs> I absolutely loved it when I said that. Because they used to think, like, the questions we were doing, the questions we'd show them, they used to think, so this is the pitch, this is where I've got to be at, I've got to be at this level. And then they'd go and sit this paper and they'd be like, oh, well, that was kind of mid-level. <laughs> I loved it. I, 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 li- I liked standing outside of the exam room and seeing them come out and, like, laughing at the paper. I thought it was a lovely way to go. So, yeah, if they wanted to do it, to do a mock exam, by the way, like a paper, they could do that if they wanted. They could, they, they could go to our filing cabinets and get a paper and take it home if they wanted. They rarely did, but they could do it if they wanted to. But Got all it. curriculum time spent on teaching. Got it. You've, you've cleared that up one very nice, Mark, there. And final question for you. Um, <laughs> this is this is one of my favourite things to hear you talk about as well. Um, I know you've got big views on, on schemes of work or, or schemes of learning. And I also know that there'll be lots of people listening to, to, to this podcast around about this time or perhaps um, towards the uh, towards the end of summer term who'll be thinking about rewriting, particularly this, this year, their key stage three schemes of work. Um to, to whether it's to, to fit in with the new Ofsted framework or, or whatever it is, or it happens every year. People rewrite schemes of work left, right and centre. Um, if you've got a teacher listening who's thinking of rewriting their, their schemes of work, whatever year group it would be, what advice would you have for them? Uh, don't. <laughs> You're right. I mean, seriously, why, why on earth would you do it? Yeah, there, there are 20,000 schools in England. There are 350,000 maths teachers in England. Why the hell has it become an accepted norm in our profession that every single individual has to reinvent the wheel? And people will talk about ownership and all that kind of stuff. You think, oh, get lost. What, what utter nonsense. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't get heart surgeons who say, well, I'll come up my, with my own way of performing heart surgery. That's not how a profession works. A profession says, here is the canon that is the, the body of our professional knowledge. It's been developed by thousands and thousands and thousands of professionals over a huge period of time we know an enormous amount about our profession i hand it to you here you go and and this idea in education that you've got to write every resource write every scheme of work is really really abhorrent it wastes so much time so much money and and then people get it wrong because it's really really hard to do really hard to write a coherent curriculum really hard to resource it, really hard to think through all the mathematical connections and mathematical ideas. Um, so, yeah, my, my short answer would be just, just don't do it. Um, and, and, you know, you can you can just go and get one if you want to get one. You know, if, you, if you're worried and you want a new one, fine, go and get one. Um, there are loads out there. You know, obviously we do one, but there are tons out there like um, CIMT still exists. Mm. You know, CIMT still it's on this website it still exists bloody amazing amazing piece yes of correct well go and use that you won't write something better i promise you you really won't um you know it took, took years and years to develop and, and that's just one example there are loads of examples out there um you can you can even download loads from the national stem center you know just grab them if you want um so i, I would say don't do it and and also the because when people do do it because the, the job is so vast to 
to map out the whole of mathematics. What then happens is that teachers say, well, that job's too vast. These 320 mathematical ideas that go from the start to the end, I can't possibly map that out. So I'll just map out year seven or key stage three, mm. whatever it is. There is no year seven. It just <laughs> does not exist. If the attainment gap in year seven is seven years of learning, which it is, there is no year seven. So you need to know all 320 mathematical ideas. You need to know the whole of school level mathematics. You can't write a curriculum that works for that size of attainment gap. And where you see people writing schemes like the, the, the ones that, and perhaps what you're trying to do at the end of this interview is to give me some kind of coronary arrest. Uh, but <laughs> the, the, ones, the, the ones that truly make my blood boil are the, are these schemes that say, so this is year four, term two, week five, lesson one. You'll be learning this. How the hell do you know? How can you possibly know that that's the case? Learning is not predictable. It's really, really complex. And that's like trying to say, um, you know, in a year's time on this date, the weather is going to be like this. There are just too many variants. You have this huge multivariate complex system that you can't predict. The best thing you can possibly do is to understand a coherent journey through the whole of mathematics and work out where they are at on that journey and start at the right place for each individual child. That's the best you can do. And, you know, I can promise you, someone's had to do the task many times. If you try and sit down to write that coherent journey over summer, you won't be able to do it. It's really hard. It takes a really long time and a lot of people. So don't do it. It's out there already. Just go and get it from somewhere else. Um, save and when yourself you, and, when you, and what, I, I agree with you on this mark but even like like the cmt one that's still in years right um what 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 would you what would you advise people to do essentially if just on practical level kind of download all the year groups put it in a list and then figure out roughly where the average child in a class is up to and, and start it there because we we can't we can't teach every individual child their own bespoke curriculum practically or or, or can we i'm just just trying to think practical level you've got a teacher listening here they, they're, they're looking for some real good advice on what to do with their scheme of work like what what should what should they do um uh, there's a lot of questions in there um Oh, no. oh, yes. no, oh, no. <laughs> yes, you can teach every child individually, um, even in a group setting. That's perfectly possible. It is, it is the heart of what mastery is. Um, the CIMT example, okay, it's labelled in years, but it's not in years, right? What it's saying is, which is what lots of, of coherent schemes do, what it's saying is, mm. if you are going to learn the whole of mathematics, mm. this is what the journey would look like. So for a child who's going to learn the whole of mathematics, they'll be at this point, this right. point, typically. It's why, um, you know, I get, I just despair when I hear people talking about age-related expectations. It's like, what are you talking about? Which expectation? <laughs> what expectation are you talking about? So they're not meeting age-related expectation. What, what does that mean? And you'll hear teachers talking about this all the time, not meeting age-related expectation. What does it mean? You'll say, well, they're not at the right level for a 10-year-old. What's the right level for a 10-year-old? Uh, um, I don't know. And where does it go to? What is the expectation? They're going to get a nine? They're going to learn the whole of maths? Oh, no, no, not nine, five. Oh, five, right, because five is really bloody low. So what age are you 
talking about and what expectation are you talking about? What journey are you talking about? Because to me, the only journey that, that, that makes any sense at all is they're going to learn the whole of mathematics. It's the only journey that can make any sense. So if you want to have an age-related expectation, you better be talking about they're going to get nine at GCSE and learn the whole of maths. If you're talking about anything else, like getting 100 on the key stage two um, national exam, it's, it's just a bloody joke. <laughs> you know, that's not an age-related expectation. That's an, I mean, what that is, if you think what 100 is uh, on the key stage two exams, that 100 is saying, well, okay, they, they're going to be a kind of average kid. They're going to get a, a four or five at the end of GCSE. And then everyone's really happy, you know, get 100. Well, you've just said what we think is going to happen to this kid is there's going to be a huge amount of mathematics, school-level mathematics, that they're not going to learn. Hey, celebration. That's not that's not something to celebrate. That's bloody depressing. You know? So, so what CIMT are doing when they're saying, look, here are the year groups. Those year groups are if the person is going to learn everything. Hmm. You know, so you don't put if you've got a year seven kid and they can't number one to ten, of course you don't start them on CIMT year seven unit one, which is about logic and Venn diagrams, mm. pretty sophisticated Venn diagram work. Of course you don't put them there. You put them on the first unit of year one, and then you build up from there. So, yeah. <laughs> I think before you Just have a heart attack, really. we, we bl- <laughs> yeah, we best because I want you back for this 30th anniversary uh, reunion. So we best stop there before <laughs> I kill you off here. And um, just to fi- just to finish, Mark, um, just tell us a little bit about your book and um, where, where can where, where can people pre-order it from um, in particular? Well, they can't pre-order it because pre-order is <laughs> not a word, um, and grammar matters. Uh, so they can order it from Amazon. Uh, there's a link on my Twitter account. Uh, they can go on John Cat who's the publisher, and you find it on there as well. Um, yeah, so you can order it now. It is shipped, I believe, on 31st of May. Um, yeah, and it is about... It's kind of weird. It's, it's called Teaching for Mastery, um, and clearly I do talk about the mastery model and what the mastery model is. What I'm really intrigued by is you had this guy 100 years ago who started developing this model. You know, Carlton Washburn starts this. And what I love is that then afterwards, because it was such a powerful model, such a powerful proposition of every single child could learn everything, what then happened is a load of serious educators over decades added to that um, model everything new we find out about learning. You know, so you got people like John Carroll, you got people like B.F. Skinner, Benjamin Bloom, Thomas Gusky, Block, you know, people like that adding in more more and more and more. Um, and what I'm trying to do in the book is say, I think Carlton would be really happy to see more, the more we learn about learning, he would be really happy to see that learning integrated into his sophisticated, carefully thought out model. So what I'm trying to do is describe the model and then take the best of what we're learning about how the mind works and how learning um happens and try to integrate that into the model a bit um you know just to make some tiny contribution to the thinking of a mastery model um and my my tiny contribution to it is um what i call phasing learning the uh teach do practice behave phasing model um so that's that's what i'm attempting to do in that book um i use i use examples from mathematics obviously it's myself 
project. Uh, but it's for anyone really that's interested in in how you might schedule a coherent journey through learning such that any child can learn anything. Uh, so hopefully it's suitable for anyone. I've had a few, I'll call them lay people just because they're not a mathematician. Anyone that's not a mathematician is lay. Uh, so I've had a few lay people read it, uh, read what's there. And they said, yeah, sure, kind of makes sense. Uh, so it's not just for math teachers. Uh, yeah. You want to put that on the. You want to put that review on the front cover. Kind of makes sense. That would be good. Yeah, it kind of makes sense. Well, I liked. Um, you said to me a couple of weeks ago you were you were going to um, do one of the reviews on Amazon or something to say that it, I think you said it was going to be complete shite, uh, <laughs> which I think is how you describe it. Um, but I've I've, I've I've since read it and it's <laughs> yeah it's all right. I'd, I'd go. I'd, I'd up that review to you. It's all right actually. Yeah. It's. I would genuinely like you to write on, on Amazon. I used to think this was complete shite, and now I think it's all right, actually. <laughs> it's got a bit of po- po- a poetic feel to it as well. <laughs> no. uh, well, listen, Mark, it has been, uh, and I will say, and I'll say this, uh, I'll have said this in the introduction to the podcast, it's, it's a fascinating book. Um, the, your series of blog posts on Mastery are, are the best series of blog posts I've ever read. They're absolutely phenomenal, and, and the book just takes it to a new level. And I've been wanting to get you back on this show um, for, for years now, so I'm, I'm pleased you're back on and i i'm going to endeavor to make sure this isn't your last appearance because i always learn something and i know listeners are always learn something as well so keep doing what you're doing mark keep saying what's on your mind and and you're making us all think harder and be better for it so mark mccourt thank you so much for your time today thanks great thanks a lot cheers There you have it. There was my interview with Mark McCourt. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. He's, he's flipping great, is Mark. Um, a little behind the scenes info here on the podcast. I, I always send my guests a rough structure of the interview and a couple of the questions I'll be asking them so that they can prepare in advance. And, and most guests like that. Mark doesn't even bother opening the email that I send him with this kind of stuff, but um, he doesn't need to. He's got his wealth of knowledge. He can pull it in from, from all different areas. And yeah, it's, it, as I say, I always find it a scintillating and challenging conversation whenever I'm lucky enough to speak to him. But we don't always agree on everything, which is a good thing. Um, so in this takeaway, I just want to pick out four areas that, that I've been thinking about in particular based on based on the conversation that I had with Mark. The first is something I really, really, really like. Um, it's, it's the concept of a learning episode, which is something I've, I've really incorporated into my own thinking over the last kind of four to five months or so. But in particular, the do phase of the learning episode. Um, and I've never thought of it this way until Mark just said it then, that the purpose of the do phase is to provide feedback to the teacher if you're articulating your ideas clearly. And the do phase isn't about learning. It's, it's almost kind of a formative assessment check. And I really like this. And if you remember, God, this must be about two years ago now, um, whenever Daisy Christodoulou was on the show, and it was around about the time that David Didow, who's also been on the show, um, was having a bit of a pop at formative assessments. Now, I love formative assessments. You can imagine I wasn't too happy about this. But the point David was making, and I, I discussed this with Daisy at the time, was that formative assessment may well be fundamentally flawed because all you can observe in the moment is performance and not learning. Now, that, that's very, very true, but that doesn't mean formative assessment isn't a redundant tool. If anything, it, it's, it elevates its importance because 
if you teach something or you show something to a student and they immediately can replicate it, fair enough, you don't learn anything from that. That may not be um, evidence that the students learnt it. But I'll tell you what, if they can't do it, then you've certainly learned something there. You've learned that they don't have a flipping clue what's going on. So as Mark's saying with this, the, the purpose of the do phase, if all your class can do it, fine. You've enough, you've enough evidence there to move on to the next phase. But, but certainly don't be fooled into thinking they've learnt it. But if they can't do it, if they can't replicate it, then you need to intervene. So for me, I, I really like that way of thinking that the, that the modeling phase, when I'm doing my example problem pairs, if the students are getting the your turn bit right, well, that's not evidence for me to say, okay, let's crack on with some extreme problem solving. But it's certainly, if they're getting it wrong, that's evidence to me that I need to just put the brakes on a minute and try and figure out what's going on here. So I really like that. And I, the distinction between performance and learning and, and the Bjork's work, who've also been on this show, has, has been so transformative for me in, in my thinking over the last three to four years. So I love that one. And um, I also love um, the way Mark frames um, the idea of um, SSDD problems or, or, or Mark's notion of practicing um, involving method selection. And again, this is something that I was so bad at for many, many, many years. Just I wasn't enabling my students to develop the ability to select appropriate methods. Maths was just taught in nice, tidy, neat little boxes. Let's do a load of Pythagoras. Let's practice a load of Pythagoras. Put that in a nice box, tie a ribbon on it, crack on with something else. Let's do a load of sequences. Let's practice a load of sequences and so on and so forth. But by confronting students with, with topics from different areas of mathematics, and I do this via SSDD, and Mark does it by interleaving these problems within practice problems of the current concept or the current focus of the learning episode, then we get the real benefits of, of method selection and, and what's ultimately interleaving. And I remember when I spoke to the Bjorks and that they described that, that one of the theories behind why interleaving is so powerful for, for retention is because it forces students to reboot. They, they, they're not just kind of working through problems on autopilot and all the problems are the same. It's like, okay, now we're onto a completely different problem and, and essentially they have to access a different part of long-term memory. And it's this reboot process that forces them to, to start again, start the thinking process again, that increases retrieval and storage strengths of, of memories. So I really like that, the focus of method selection. It, it makes students focus on the differences between problems as well as the similarities. So I love that. <laughs> but it is something I'm, I'm still not convinced by. And I'm fascinated to know what other people think about this. This idea of bridging. I don't know. When, when Mark first spoke about this, I, when, sorry, when I first heard him speak about this at Blackpool, um, my immediate thought is, 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 is this the same as productive failure? Now, productive failure is something I wrote about briefly in my book, but I've read lots on this since. And productive failure is a really interesting idea um, where you essentially allow students to struggle through a problem that ultimately that they never had a chance to solve. And in some way that then primes them so that when you then teach them the method, they take it on more. Um, and the classic um, kind of study on this 
um, involves standard deviation, where you, you give students um, a set of data and you ask them to, to calculate how spread out this data is and all they've got, the only tool they've got available to them is the range and they, they struggle around and the range is fundamentally flawed and so on and so forth. And that in a way then primes them that when you say, well, I've got this brilliant new way of doing it, standard deviation and so on and so forth, then, then they take it on more. Now, um, the evidence for productive failure is, is, is mixed and there's a lot of, um, a lot of the papers I've read suggest that it works particularly well with motivated, high attaining students. But I don't think bridging is, is, is productive failure. It seems to be fundamentally different. This, this seems to me about to be about addressing and getting misconceptions almost out of kids' systems early on, if, if I've understood Mark correctly. Um, and this, in a way, seems kind of related to cognitive conflict. And again, this is something I'm, I write about in my book, but bridging seems different. But, but if you're interested in cognitive conflict, this is the idea where instead of just saying to students, you are wrong, you create this conflict which allows them to see why their method or why their answer is wrong. But again, bridging seems different to this as well. It's, it's the, yeah, as I say, it's almost like a cleansing technique. It's like, let's get all the misconceptions out. And the teacher goes, no, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And then here's the right way of doing it. It, it doesn't feel quite right to me. It, it feels like it's, it, it's the, the concerns I have with it are the same concerns of why I no longer, before I introduce a method or procedure to students, why I no longer say to them, how do you think we do this? What would be a good way to start that this, this problem? Because the ensuing conversation where kids are flying around all kinds of different answers and there's misconceptions and misinformation coming, I find it time consuming and ultimately detrimental to students. Those who are who don't know what they're doing get more confused with all these different ideas. And those that do know what they're doing just get frustrated thinking, let me just crack on with this. But I guess Mark is kind of addressing the time issue by, by kind of just shutting this down quickly. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. And so on. But then I've, I've, I've just got an issue with the confidence. I've got an issue with the, with the motivating factor. I guess this is like anything in teaching. It's 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 determined. The success is determined by the relationship and the knowledge you have with the students and so on. But I guess the final thing I've got to say about bridging is I can't be a hypocrite here. I can't I can't write a book which is all about ideas that challenged me, which the evidence suggests is right and which which I for years ignored, and then be confronted with another idea that doesn't sit right with me, i.e. bridging, and, and and ignore this as well. So I'm going to read up more on it. I'm going to do some experiments with it. I'm going to speak to more people about it. But I, again, I just wanted to throw it out there because it's probably the most challenging idea um, for me from this conversation with Mark. It doesn't sit right, but again, I, I, I can't ignore it. I can't ignore it. And the final thing I had to mention this as well is is, is low stakes quizzes. And it, as as regular listeners will know, when they when they heard the the Blackpool um, Research Ed Conference takeaway, it was classic because Mark essentially set up before I did my talk why my talk was a load of nonsense. This idea of of breaking up the learning episode. Um, with a starter or a retrieval exercise and so on. But I'm not convinced by this. I'm I'm not convinced of this this idea that by doing a retrieval-based starter, in my case, it'd be a low-stakes quiz, um, in any way breaks up the learning episode more, more than just natural time, like 24 hours passing or different subjects being taught in between and so on and so forth. So I'm not convinced by that argument. 
But what I am more convinced by is, is how important that the, these notions of, of retrieval are. And I know Mark says that, that he'll include all these different topics within his within the practice part of the of of the um the four stages of the learning episode. And that's absolutely fine, but but I'm just gonna do them, I'm gonna do them at the start separate to that because for me it has a couple of advantages. One, I don't have to wait until I get to the practice phase of a learning episode to introduce retrieval of different topics. I can just do it at a point when, when I'm ready. And this is an important bit here, because I know you're probably screaming at me, it's not about you being ready, it's about being the kids being ready and so on and so forth. But what I mean by that is, I don't think we can undervalue the importance of a routine. And I've seen enough kids where if, if, if they don't know what to expect in a lesson, or expecting an activity, you can spend so much time saying, this is what you need to do here, this is what you need to do here. And this is separate from the actual mathematics, it's just the expectations of, of how they behave, how they set work out, and so on and so forth. And what I found in, in the schools I've been lucky enough to work, uh, work in and visit during my sabbatical year, is that the routine of a low stakes quiz. So knowing, for example, that you're doing a low stakes quiz on a Tuesday and a low stakes quiz on the Thursday, it's gonna be the first 15 minutes of the lesson. You're gonna do the quiz initially in silence. You're gonna mark it using the, the work solutions on the board. You're gonna do your confidence rating. You're gonna discuss it with your neighbor for two minutes or whatever. Then the teacher's gonna go through troublesome answers. This routine, I just feel is so, so, so important to many, many students. And also I found these low stakes quizzes can be incredibly motivational. If the stakes are set right, that the kids are essentially tracking their own progress and it doesn't go on a big spreadsheet and get coloured red, green and amber and all this kind of stuff, I think I think that can be really, really beneficial to students above and beyond the benefits that we know it's going to have in terms of the testing effect, spacing effect and, and so on and so forth. So I think Mark and I both agree that retrieval of different topics is a fundamentally important thing. I think we just disagree at whereabouts this fits into to a student's week in mathematics or learning episode or whatever we want to term it. So there you go. Now um, I'm going to get have to get Mark back on at, at some point because no doubt he's going to come up with it, come out with a few more other things over the years. He he, send, he tends to be getting more kind of more confrontational as as the years go by, which is which is absolutely brilliant. Um, if um, if you enjoyed this episode, I strongly recommend Mark's book, and um, it's it, it's fantastic. Again, it's 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 a wonderful balance of, of a history book, but also showing how the lessons that we've learned from the past can be incorporated into today's classrooms. It's it's a practical book. It's it's based in theory. It's it's based in experience. It's it's, it's a wonderful read. So that's teaching for mastery. I I wholeheartedly recommend that one. Um. All that's left for me to do is a couple of thank yous and a couple of plugs. So um, thank you uh, to Mark for giving up his time. Um, again, it's always a pleasure. Thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. Massive thank you to you, my loyal listeners, for keeping on listening to these, these podcasts. That's why I do them. I, I do them for you. And it, I love um, I love hearing tales of people listening to these on the way to work. Now the weather's getting a bit nicer whilst you're doing your garden and so on. And it's, again, it, the, way, the reason I started these apart from the selfish reason to meet my educational heroes is I wanted to find a way to provide CPD on the move so you didn't have to you didn't have to kind of stay back after school or do a load of reading in your spare time and so on that you could get these these kind of insights from from interesting inspirational people in a way that doesn't intrude and, and increase your workload so I really hope people are enjoying that and um, in terms of plug um 
If you if you want to help support this podcast, there are there are well three three main ways you can do so. Two of which are absolutely free, and um, that the first of which is is review the podcast wherever you get this from. That that makes a massive difference to with, with when the algorithms kick in to how how people find the show. So that that's massive. I'd really appreciate you could do that. And um, if you've already done that, I guess the next thing you could do is recommend an episode to a friend. Um, maybe they're a maths colleague. Maybe they're a non-maths colleague. Pick your favorite episode and just say. Have a listen to this. I think you'll like that. That that'd be that'd be really great. And if you do want to make a monetary contribution, and there's there's no pressure whatsoever to do this. I, I mean, I do these for free because I, I love doing these for free. But a few people have asked me how they can support the show. And Patreon.com forward slash Mr Barton Maths is the way to do that. And you can sign up for like a, a dirt cheap monthly contribution or a one off or, or whatever you want to do. But no pressure whatsoever to do that. But there's a link to that in the show notes. And the second and final plug is my new podcast series that I mentioned in the introduction. It's called Inside Exams. Um, the idea is I go behind the scenes of an exam board asking the questions that you want to ask. And there's some, I mean, I'm obviously going to say this, but there's some absolutely cracking episodes. I'm finding out loads of stuff. Um, we've done one on language where I discuss with, with an exam writer how the language, how they actually choose the language for questions, why certain words are in there, why why questions sometimes feel a bit too wordy or the language feels a bit too complex and, and what are some of the considerations um, involved in, in making those decisions. And then I go and speak to a practicing teacher who um, in this particular episode has a lot of uh, students who have English as an additional language and, and what are some of the challenges there and what are some of the practical ways that we can overcome those challenges. And then later in the series, there's a flipping classic on multiple choice questions that I'm dead excited for. We've got one on grey boundaries, one on social media, um, I- incidents and issues and so on. There's, there's loads of stuff there. So that that's inside exams. Search for that wherever you get your podcasts from um, or there'll be a link in the show notes as well. Um, I shall be back with fresh episodes. I've got some absolute crackers already in the can. I've already recorded them. And I'm so excited about putting them out. Cannot wait for that. But thanks so much for listening again. You take care of yourselves and bye for now. <laughs>